Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everybody. Patrick Connor here. Welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast man we're doing more boxing history that means i'm here with my dude arispina compu box operator and fellow fight history freak bro how are you doing good man i got a new shirt in today so i'm feeling happy uh, dude it's well i mean that's pretty much like several days a week for you so that's not even <laughs> like you know but still that's a fucking dope shirt man absolutely dude, and uh, we, had, we had a we had a good um weekend of fights um you know, just to reference that really quick, you know what I mean? Uh, Bam Rodriguez, once again, proved he's a star in the making, if not a star already. And, yeah, there's actually going to be a low this weekend, I think, right? I don't think there's anything coming up. Yeah, nothing major, I don't think. Um, I'd have to At look. It's the 4th again. of July weekend, too. I think they'd be foolish. Yeah. Well, man, I'm not going to lie, dude. Sometimes I lose track as far as like the contemporary boxing when it's like, it, it's been so good that it's been so frequent every so often when there's a lull, it's almost like take a breath, man. It's good. But Bam Rodriguez, uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I think spectacular is a word that's getting thrown around a lot, but it's, it's probably warranted in, in this case, dude, he absolutely ran uh three socket Sarung Visai all around the ring and then just beat the hell out of him in the last round and a half or so. So, I mean, it was, it was a beat down and it was a, an extremely good showing for a really young fighter. He's awesome, man. You know, for his age too, you know what? I was texting my buddy about this earlier that he was born when I was in high school, when you were in high school, you know what I mean? And he's a world champion now. And it's kind of like, damn, we're getting old. <laughs> like so little things start hitting you at that point. Yeah, because what he was born, he was born in 2000, right? And when you think about it, 2000 was 22 years ago, but it, or he was in 2000, right? Am I correct? Something, yeah. Well, I graduated in 2000, so anywhere around there, po- yeah, point is, I graduated is, 03, so it's yeah. kind of like anything around then. You think about that time period, it doesn't seem that long ago, but it is. But it's like, regardless, a person that young with that maturity, bro, the way he moves his angles, you see the shades of Orlando Canizales. You see the maturity in him, the um, the poise, dare I say, like of Salvador Sanchez. I'm not reaching too hard. I'm just saying, like examples of things, and like just the the just this whole his whole package right now at that age, man. He's very mature for his age and the way he fights, dude. That's a prodigy right there. You know what I mean? And as our friend Corey Erdman mentioned earlier in his article for Boxing Scene, um, you know he has the potential to be the next big star at that division. The likes of, for the U.S. that likes we haven't seen since the days of Johnny Tapia, Danny Romero. You know what I mean? He's showing that type of potential. But who knows where he's going to go from here? You know, it's already been said that it would have to be a last resort for him to fight Chocolatito because they both were under the, the Tykin label and they're like brothers and he just wouldn't want to do that. Totally understandable. 
Um, Estrada has his own business with uh, going up with Chocolatito coming up again. So that's kind of um, annulled at the moment. So with that being said, he said he might be looking to go back down eventually. I, well, I was just about to say with all the, uh, the weight moving around on his part, it's, I don't even know where he's destined to land as far as division. And in that regard, the options seem pretty wide open, which is fantastic and really cool to think about and all the mythical matchups and the potential things to put him in, you know, with, or the opponents to put him in with over the next few years, assuming he stays winning and stays doing his thing, which it sounds like, you know, it sure seems like he probably will based on the stuff you just said, because he seems very poised, very complete as a fighter. Um, one of the things that you see, even from high level fighters, even from fighters who are world-class world ranked, it's something you see from fighters on that level a lot. They smother their own work, you know, even when they're precision punchers, good punchers, whatever, uh, in terms of footwork and in terms of positioning, they smother their own work constantly. And something that is really difficult to do is that kind of like find that optimal distance for a fighter and stay at that distance that's something that chocolate chocolatito for instance is extremely good at and totally. i think that kind of like drawing on that comparison you see uh what bam rodriguez did against three socket and then you see what chocolatito did against him and it's uh, first of all i think that we both thought chocolatito won the first fight like narrowly but won it because he fought his fucking ass off and i think we both thought he deserved that decision but the second fight obviously there's 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 no arguing anything but in both fights what we saw with chocolatito a big difference was that he threw like everything he had at sarong visai who just absorbed it he just didn't move and so, I mean, I think that it was, uh, and, and on top of that, with Chocolatito having already gone up X amount of divisions, it's like, you know, you can't move like that uh, naturally at that weight, or, you know, Chocolatito, that is, for that many rounds and not tire out, which is pretty much what happened in the rematch. You know, like he, couldn't, he couldn't sustain that. And everybody thought he was done, and to his credit, he's still around and still a goddamn beast. And I mean, I'm going to, when that guy comes up on the Hall of Fame ballot, I'm going to fucking rent a jet-powered fucking air glider like Fan Man and just trapeze my vote right on that Canastota right with that shit in my hand, like, woo, fucking Chocolatito. Because that guy's- There's no way ass. he's not going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. 100%. But um, but that's the a big difference I think between you know a, a lot of X factors with Chocolatito's age, him moving up in weight already, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. against Sorungvisai. But then also to be fair, that was a couple of years ago, and Sorungvisai has been somewhat inactive since, and has lost a few times in really difficult fights too since. So those things don't just happen in a vacuum; those things do count. And that's not to take anything away from Rodriguez because he he put the nail in the proverbial coffin. You know, he beat the crap out of Sorong Visay. And it was the way he did it, man. It was like Sorong Visay is one of the toughest guys on the planet. That's undoubtedly so. He, he's proved his mental time and time again. And but no one I don't think he's ever encountered a style like that. You know what I mean? You, you could totally see he was absolutely bewildered. Like not only did he have a thousand punches coming at him in every direction. 
Um, even though he did outthrow Bam Rodriguez, I was doing the compu box for that fight, and he narrowly outthrew him. But I mean, he was getting yeah, a flurry of shots. It was the angles that it was coming from. You know what I mean? That's that's what it was. Yeah. Like so he was stepping around and stepping yeah. around the lane. He was coming with the uppercuts and the hooks and the jabs and the jabs because he he jabbed the shit out of him. You know, and coming with the other shots and pot shot and going to the body. Whether you do like it was it was just a beautiful. Everything was just emotion and. Like you said, obviously, Sarangavasaya has like took um is a little past his prime, lost a little bit of his step. Considering like you know he's not the same force that was fighting with Chocolatito in their first fight at the Garden, or you know knocking the hell out of him in the rematch. Um, hell, this wasn't even the one that fought um Estrada the two times, but it was still a very formidable fighter who would have given anyone else fits if not outright beat them that night. Um, even certain instances in the fight. Rodriguez is there dominating and he was never really out of control, but Sorangvasai did land some shots to show that he was just still an, an incredibly brute uh, force. Like at one point, if you notice, they exchanged jabs and Sorangvasai, like Rodriguez hit him and Sorangvasai didn't move. Sorangvasai hits him with a jab and Rodriguez visibly, his head moved back, his whole body was like kind of moved back from that. And it's that physical strength of the dude, man. He's tree just a bruiser, dude. A bruiser, yeah. yeah. But he could never get, you know, he was never able, able to get trapped. And that's what he needs. He never was able to get into a rhythm because Rodriguez didn't let him. You know, Bam just yeah. moved around the angles, the, the Lomachenko-like style for more modern people, the kind of, like the, the footwork was just superb. Again, like it wasn't the Quadras fight. Um, the placement of his punches, everything had a purpose for it. It wasn't just wasted energy, you know, like the maturity level we were talking about. Uh, he's, a, he's a special, special talent. But you know, um, again, it's going to be interesting to see where he goes from here. He mentioned that he wants his brother to fight um, Estrada or Chocolatito so they can, like, you know, kind of make history together and stuff. But, um, again, we'll see where he ends up. Robert Garcia, his trainer, had mentioned that um, he was hoping to go down to 112 eventually again. So there's a lot of options for him. He's only 22. Like, the sky's the limit for this kid, man. I'm not sure if he's like on the pound pound list yet, as a lot of people were like talking about earlier. Besides, I think those are always stupid. But um, I will say he's obviously going to be a leader in the sport for years to come, along with um, Shakur Stevenson, Boots Ennis, and, you know, a handful of others. If he really can safely move around weight-wise like that, then okay. He says yeah. he can't. I mean – you know, 115 to 112 isn't that much of a difference. Going back to 108 might be a little bit much. Yeah, and and like I said, if it's safe for him to do that, or if he can do it effectively, or whatever, cool. And uh, you know that that's just, I guess, one more, one more kind of wrinkle to his game, or whatever, being able to kind of move up or down in that regard. So that's that's pretty wild, dude. Because in the last, Gosh, I mean, 15 years or so, we've really seen some incredible, maybe even 20 years, we've seen some incredible, uh, like, right around flyweight action. I mean, going back even farther, really, it's been a, it's been a division that has delivered as far as entertainment and talent for literally forever. And it's an, it's an extremely deep division historically. So, I mean... I'm all for it, dude. I love it. You know, anything to add to it. And it's really great to see in the last handful of years, uh, partially starting with Chocolatito, as far as this kind of resurgence with the lower weight fighters, it's oh. really great to see him get some, get some pay and get some, get some shine, you know? Oh, absolutely, man. It, it, it took forever for them to, you know, really get prominence on television and get some traction going. Um, you know, as we mentioned, <clears throat> excuse me, 
as we mentioned before about like Danny Romero and Johnny Tapia, they were the first to be really featured on uh, prominent television like HBO um, in the early 90s, early to mid 90s, because they were obviously on a collision course with each other. And Tapia, um, Romero was the, was the one that was being more groove for superstar because he was the one, you know, like more clean cut. He had kind of like the De La Hoya type looks and spectacular power, top rank full behind him. They were behind Tapia too, but Romero was the guy that was being pushed as like the future star. He was the one that got first on HBO, uh, the first flyweight to be featured on HBO. One was um, when he beat Francisco Tejador on the undercard of uh, George Foreman, Axel Schultz. And, you know, he was, he was being groomed for stuff. But by the time Tapia beat him in that big fight, Tapia kind of took that mantle. But again, it, it is still, they after they both went away, it petered off too. Mark Johnson, um, one of the most talented flyweights, junior bantamweights the world has ever seen. Same thing. He never really was able to get a chance to get on, you know, major television like that. Like he was featured on ESPN against Arthur Johnson. Um, he had a couple other times he was featured on ABC and such, but you know, one of those premium slots on HBO boxing after dark, for instance, or world championship boxing. Um, it never happened. There was talked about, it was rumored every time you'd seen it every few months in a uh, ring magazine or KO magazine, they would say Mark Johnson scheduled to fight so-and-so on HBO boxing after dark. And for whatever reason, it didn't take off. Then he went to jail for a little bit, came back, finally was featured on HBO, and he was clearly past his best at that point. So, like you said, now with Chocolatito and the rest of um, you know, his comrades, I'm not going to call them kings because I hate that term. Um, they they were able to take that mantle, and it was beautiful to see, you know, Superfly, the the things that are featured on HBO, and they've been prominent ever since then. I'm glad the world's been able to take notice with that as well. Yeah, dude, it's it's cool because they've deserved it, and we've deserved it. Damn it, yes. we need to see that shit. You know, Absolutely, we've, we've, man. Especially in the days when before that before they were really featured. So we're talking like the early two thousands, and when YouTube was in its infancy, that was really the only time, unless you were a tape trader, are you yeah, able we to see? Ever reading about these fools? You know, yeah. a lot of them. All of them. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, yeah. So it's it's really good to see somebody like a Jesse Rodriguez get get some play, get some. Uh, you know, get some attention and get some, totally. some airtime, you know, cause we, we should be seeing a lot of those fighters and it's like, you know, there've been a lot of more mainstream people who've criticized lower weights in the past and they were wrong flat out. They were wrong. So yeah, regardless though, a lot of fun this past weekend and we are here to talk about history though, dude. And uh, we're going to yeah. revisit, we're going to have a part two soon of talking about the Kronk fighters doing another kind of true crime episode um, it seemed a lot of people enjoyed that and it brought back some good kind of 19 late 1970s, early 1980s memories, but we're going to switch it up just a little bit this week. And we're talking about when trash talk goes wrong in boxing. It's always fun, right? Man, it's going to be always. funny, fun, entertaining. <laughs> Can't beat that type of stuff, man. I mean, we always love trash talkers. We did a show on trash talkers because they're always entertaining guys, but when the trash can when karma comes to hit these dudes in the ass uh it happens yeah nothing better (laughs) i mean they're with so many with so many like potential variables in like every fight in boxing with the old kind of like you know anything can happen like that that's always you know in just about any fight ever anything can happen obviously to varying degrees right but eventually somebody is going to talk some trash 
they're always for years saying, oh, it's a gentleman's sport and blah, blah, blah. But the fact of the matter is drama draws attention and attention means money. So, you know, at various points in history, drama and shit talk and whatnot have been encouraged, maybe on the down low or behind the scenes from promoters, but in, in, you know, to all the writers or whomever, they're going, whoa, 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 you know, guys, no, come on, we don't do this here. This is not, not this sport, when in reality, like, that, totally this sport, that's been the entire time we've done this shit. So mm-hmm. in any case, uh, that's, it's bound to happen sooner or later. And we're talking about all of the sooner and later today <laughs> there, there's yeah there's so many examples tons of them man um you I mean, we, you can go all the way back from the beginning of time all the way till today like there's, there's always been like a list of like famous trash talkers a lot of bullshit artists all that other stuff um one of my all-time favorites and because my dad used to talk about him a lot when i was a kid and this is from my dad's era when he was a kid because <clears throat> My dad comes from the Joe Lewis era, actually. You know, that's he used to tell me about how he would listen to Joe Lewis fights on the radio with uh, with my grandfather. So that kind of gives you an idea of how old my dad is. I'm not going to give out his age, but um, it's uh, yeah. So who I'm referencing is um, of course everybody's favorite uh, fat barroom brawler, two ton Tony Galento. <laughs> what a legend, dude! What a really legend, was, man. <clears throat> So like there's, I don't know how you can necessarily verify it, but they've said for years that there were a handful of fights where he carried beer to his corner and had beer in his corner in place of water. I have no idea how he'd really, you know, be getting away with that. Cause I would imagine that, it, I mean, commissions existed at this point. It's not like mm-hmm. there was some wild West shit going on in Jersey and New York, but there, there were reports at the time that he had brought beer uh, and because he was a saloon keeper, he was a barkeep. And so uh, he had owned a bar and I want to say it was Orange, New Jersey or something like that. And uh, so that's it where Orange, New Jersey. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's where he was always hanging out. And he, you know, openly did not like to train very much, was a big drinker, always had a cigar in his mouth. And I mean, he basically looked like me <laughs> more or less the guy was just you know he's bald and he was hairy and not in good shape whatsoever but he was underrated in the skills department he was better than he looked but he was still clumsy however he could punch <laughs> clumsy's putting in like yeah he was awkward he was very awkward and very clumsy not what you would call a style a stylist in the sense at all um he, but he was fun to watch, man. He did not care about the rules. All right. Everything was yeah. a street point to him. Um, against like a polished, like a really polished style, he was going to look like shit. Like against yeah, somebody who's uh, like really straight up and like, you know, is not like falling for that shit. He's going to look mm-hmm. like shit. But, you know, as we've seen so many times before, sometimes that really ambling style can be more effective than you think. I mean, he had good wins on his ledger too, you know, on the way to fighting to, to fighting Lewis, like Nathan Mann, for instance, who fought Lewis and, uh, and a host of others. And he, 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 all right, the best way to put it, maybe if you want to describe him, he was like someone kind of modern, maybe like Tank Abbott. What'd you think? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's not bad. That's true. Yeah. Think about it. 
they both, you know, Abbott was probably in better shape than Galento, if that means it much, but like they had similar body types. Both were ridiculous punchers. Both looked like they had no business being in there with polished guys who knew what they were doing. But if they were able to, you know, land their haymaker, which usually they're able to at some point, they would put you yeah. to sleep or they would maul you or do serious damage to you. Yep. And so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's actually, um, <clears throat> there's there are actually some really funny things too especially because like uh so tony galento galento however it's pronounced was um known for referring to damn near everybody as a bum everybody uh, whatever like if whatever fighter it was you know go that bum this bum that guy you know this bum that type of shit and at the time, in like the 1930s, I mean, you can probably get an idea from movies like The Cinderella Man is in as in inaccurate as that shit was when it came to a lot of the boxing quote unquote facts. Nonetheless, <clears throat> some of the background was pretty accurate as far as the Depression era and the way people were having to live and get by. And so <laughs> a lot of that kind of talking uh, in places like Jersey and New York was considered like lower class. Like if you were talking with that real thick, heavy accent, you were considered kind of lower class. And so here you have Tony Galento run around just, you know, he's got the thickest accent to the point where just about any time you see quotes from him, it's in that like phonetic stylized, like uh text where it's like, you, you can barely read it. Cause it's like this guy's over here and shit like that, you know? <laughs> and so in any case, uh, one of his his most epic trash talk was obviously against Joe Lewis because he's calling Joe Lewis a bum, and obviously exactly. Joe Lewis was not a bum. But there was I'm gonna a, moiter the bum. I'm going to moiter the bum. Yeah, I'm moiter the bum. Shakespeare was that bum. I don't know, but I'm moiter him. That type of shit. And uh, so, like a like a couple weeks or a month or so before the Lewis fight, and it was right before as they're doing introductions for Lou, Lou Nova versus Max Bayer one at uh, Yankee stadium. It was in June of 1939, uh, Tony Galento and Lewis, they're being introduced. And if you've seen the old fight broadcast, which I know you have, but anybody listening or watching, if you've seen the old broadcast, you know that the old fighters being introduced or other fighters being introduced in the ring, that's a normal thing. It happened all the time, but uh, uh, Nova Bayer one is particularly significant because it was the first major fight to be televised in the United States. And funnily enough, as Jalento, Galento and Lewis are being introduced to each other, Lewis is walking into the ring and Tony like sprints, like falls all over himself to like help Lewis through the ropes and then sits there shaking his hand for like five minutes straight. Lewis is like looking at him like, dude, let go of my fucking hand. Like, and, and you could tell that, like, Tony's just like, you know, saying some shit to him, and you can't say you in whatever. And Lewis kind of turns around and he salutes Max Bayer, salutes Lunova, says hello to everybody. And Tony sprints back to him and grabs his hand again to like shake it and talk to him. And he's like sitting there for like ever. <laughs> Dude, it's the funniest shit. So obviously, the trash talk, a lot of it was just a show. Because it seemed like he was saying probably something like, hey, don't take the shit personal. Or it seemed like he was obviously showing him respect, you know, in the way that he was acting. But he I mean, went Lewis right back to... Out of him, man. <laughs> oh, my God, dude. It's a four-round... I don't know that I've seen in a four-round fight 
someone uh, get drugged the way he did? I mean, he's he's already an ugly bastard. He already looks like a like a ghoulie. You know, you remember the ghoulies. He already looks like a ghoulie. <laughs> And this dude looks just like terrible, beaten up sack of suds uh, at the end of the fight, dude. He looks awful and dude. He looks like a water bag. It sounds like Lewis is hitting a water bag at the end, just doosh, doosh, doosh. And he can't. You know, he was dangerous early on. He actually landed. He dropped Lewis. He had a dangerous, dangerous left hook. And him being so, so unorthodox and just wild and you know very strong physically himself, it's. He, you know, he unnerved a lot of boxers, including Lewis early on. Lewis had to, like, you know, catch his composure. And while hitting him with numerous combinations, had to brace himself for whenever he was going to get bum-rushed with some wild shit that Galento was going to throw. And, yeah, man, it was just a four-round drubbing, all right? The, uh, some, you know, the likes the world hadn't seen at that point. The last time they had probably made them get flashbacks to Jess Willard, um, Jack Dempsey. That's you know? good, yeah, that's true. Well, Lewis Lewis uh, hit the deck in I think it was the, it was the third, um, but it was brief and he was like he was he was okay. But again, like we said, the dude could punch the guy in, and Joe Lewis was fairly flat footed. He didn't move super great. He didn't move his head that well either sometimes. So sooner or later, he's going to get hit regardless of who it is, and Galento could punch. So oh. it's not you know a wonder that he hurt him at all. But nonetheless, again, in, within a round, he had beaten the ever-loving shit out of this guy to the point where he was, like, falling into the ropes and the referees stepping in, like, wow, please stop. There was people yelling ringside, like, to stop the fight. You know, stop it, stop oh, it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's a fucking massacre, dude. But you have to – I'll give Galento this, man. As bad as he took an ass whoop in that fight with Joe Lewis – his very next fight was against the guy you just, you know, mentioned who was fighting Max Bear and Lou Nova. And um, to say that is one of the most worst muggings in boxing history would be an understatement. And the thing is, a lot of people probably don't even know about it. You know what I mean? If you're not, if you're not like a major history person or really read up on this type of thing, um, it ended up being one of the worst, most just absolute, it was a street mugging. It wasn't even a boxing match. And poor Lunova was absolutely ruined in the fight. Lunova was a very talented heavyweight, a very eccentric heavyweight. Um, cosmic punch. Yeah, yeah, cosmic punch, you know, practice yoga, did a bunch of other stuff that was very uncommon for the time period. But, you know, he'd, he'd be popular today because like I said, he, he was- He had a good team, you know, he had Ray Arcel. He did. And he was a very good fighter. You know, despite his quirkiness, he was a very good fighter. And one that you described more so in the classic sense than certainly someone like Galento. But Galento was that type of guy that if you couldn't hold him off and for all of his, you know, out of shapeness or whatever, you know, besides him being able to wield a good left hook, he could really, really, really take punishment. Like it was going to be hard to put him down. Lewis is the exception. Lewis is probably the greatest puncher in boxing history. Galento was a hard man. Yeah, going, yeah, falling against Joe, uh, not only Joe Lewis, but a Joe Lewis who looked pissed and who was just like, yeah. and in that fourth round when he was ending the fight, he was throwing punches like. And this was still the 30s too. This wasn't like, you know what I mean? This was still a young Joe Lewis out there pissed before before the war and everything else. So yeah, like, he was throwing punches time. like he, he really <laughs> wanted to hurt him. And he did. And he yeah. certainly did. So with that being said, if you weren't, so if you weren't able to hold off 
you know, like Joe Lewis, if you weren't able to hold off someone like that, uh, Galento, then Galento was going to have free reign on you. Poor Lou Nova wasn't able to do that. And Galento, besides punching once in a while, everything in the arsenal, man, probably even like made Fritzy put Fritzy Civic to, uh, Civic to shape that night. I'm talking kicks, elbows, knees, laces, headbutts, probably biting, gouging, everything you can imagine that you could do in a fight, Galento got away with. And the referee, uh, George Blake, who had a good reputation before that fight, did, didn't do shit just absolutely didn't do anything and just kind of let it go on. And it was a massacre. It was an absolute massacre that had no business going on. And everyone at that time period was like appalled. They were, that we're talking like some gory TVMA type stuff going on that fight. Yeah. We're, these fools were like dining with rats yeah. and they're like, stop the fight. <laughs> it, it was bad. It was like Galento living should- among gore and they're like, this is too much for us. They, yeah. they probably should have stopped, like, they probably, Galento shut up, probably should have been disqualified multiple times, or the fight should have been stopped earlier, but, like, Nova was just a wreck. It was bad, and he was a good dude and a good fighter, and no one deserves a beating like that. Dude, you know, Galento was just, just an all-time character, for sure. I'm yeah. not saying everything he did was good or great or anything, but definitely in terms of just being a fucking character, man, no question. Um, and you know what, actually? There's another anecdote about this guy, Two-Ton Tony, that he almost, this trash talk almost went wrong for him, even against a well-retired Jack Dempsey, believe it or not. You know, and funnily enough, a couple of years before this, Jack Dempsey was still doing exhibitions. So, and he was in fighting shape damn near his entire life. So... shit dude tony might have been lucky that dempsey didn't give him the old what for because fucking uh apparently <laughs> tony galento confronted jack dempsey at the photographer's ball in 1939 and basically got into his face and said you know got into his face and asked why he'd been talking shit and according to reports he said you big tramp why do you go around the country <laughs> knocking me what did I ever do to you? Colored I'll trail. knock that Lewis into your lap. I at least fight colored fighters, something you were afraid to do. You ducked Harry Wills for years. And Ooh. I read that and I was like, holy shit. He said that Light in bomb. Jack Dempsey's face. And apparently, yeah. And apparently not only did Jack Dempsey not do shit, Jack Dempsey said, said basically said bullshit. And if you knock Lewis out, I'll give you five grand. Okay. And obviously that didn't happen. I bet, you, I bet you Dempsey even knew too that he might have been, I don't know, Galento might have been a little too rough for him. That's that probably point. why he offered him the five grand. Yeah, man. But, well, before we move on, I'll give you one more. You probably know the story. Young Jackie Gleason talked the story one time that he said he was, yeah. he was doing a stand-up comedy somewhere or whatever. <laughs> and there was a drunk guy in the audience that kept on heckling him and heckling him. And he was getting pissed off because the guy kept on talking every time he tried to make a joke whatever he kept on getting interrupted you know and Gleason who obviously went on to become a legend in the field uh at this point he was still young and he was in shape and he was pissed off you know I'm sure he'd been in a few dust-ups in his time at this point so he figured he sees some fat blob in the audience that just that's looking you know inebriated could be an easy w for him right so he calls the guy out hey man you want a piece of me talk some shit yada 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 come follow he says to his surprise before he can even finish you know, the guy hopped out of his seat to go meet him. 
That guy ended up being two-ton Tony Galento. <laughs> and Gleason, before he even knew what happened to him, before he even knew, but you know, before he can even blink, he said he was knocked unconscious. Pop, 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 pop. And just laid there, you know, unfolded like an accordion in a garbage can somewhere. Just straight up cooked. All right. Got lamped in 20 seconds by a drunk Tony Galento who probably went waddling off to go buy some more beer and chicken or something later on. And um, as he did that, when Jackie Gleason came to missing teeth and bloodied up and just, you know, completely bewildered, they explained to him who Tony Galento was. <laughs> Might've looked like shit against Joe Lewis, but that's not a guy that you want to get into a fucking bar fight with. No, absolutely not, man. I just, dude, he had absolutely ham, like ham hocks for hands and just burnt. Nah. Mm -mm. You know, I've seen enough videos on YouTube out there. I'm just like at the beach and other stuff with the same type of body types of Galento, just straight up dominating dudes, like body beautiful Mike Weaver looks looking guys. You don't don't mess with them, man. For whatever reason, they just know how to scrap. <laughs> Bruh, yeah, it's just like, you know, I've the average street fight is like 13 seconds. So if it's like somebody can take a few punches, they're probably going to win. And Galento could take a few punches. Don't fight that guy in a bar. So yeah, Jackie Gleason, I apologize, buddy, but you deserved it. You deserved it. And Galento, to his credit, you know, ended up being a fixture in boxing. He uh, moonlighted as a popular wrestler, which fitting, which was fitting for him. But um, if you see a lot of uh, the Ring magazines and other publications from like the 60s and 70s, you'll see that Tony Galento was always in the back of him. Whenever they had like the, the photograph features, You'd always see him in the back, you know, at one some kind of DBA or ring, whatever, somewhere in the L.A. area, with a bunch of other old timers sitting there, you know. Yeah, and with a cigar in his hand, and usually yep. with a drink or something like that. And he had lost a lot of weight by that point, and he got leaning in like the whole comb over thing going on. Totally different look. So I'm I'm gonna move on, but by moving on, I'm actually going back, like not quite a century but almost a century way way, way back all right uh, yeah almost <laughs> a century actually so um i will admit i do i did have to do well i wanted to do some searching around because i mean i could think of a whole shitload of instances from the last like 20 years 25 years where trash talk went wrong mm -hmm. and i think a lot of that is because a lot of the stuff that we have seen from that time you know that time period and not just the fights but like, you know, uh, the buildup to the fights, the pre-fights, the, you know, all that type of stuff. We've, we've simply just lived through more of that, seen more of that and all that type of stuff. So I did have to look around and I did get some help. So I'm not going to lie there. However, um, I was kind of reminded when I did get that help about this article that I, you know, came across years ago because i have a just like you a massive stack of the ring and so in any case this art this article is from the uh october 1972 issue of the ring and it's the issue with roberto duran oh nice and hitting ken buchanan low <laughs> on the cover so i mean you know it's significant because of that but in any case the one of the little kind of sub captions or whatever on the cover is uh who was the dirtiest fighter of them all and so this actually figures into our discussion so there's a guy named william william thompson whose nickname was bendigo and 
he Bold was Bendigo, named right? what's that old bendigo yep exactly and he was named as at least in this issue this issue is possibly the dirtiest fighter of all time i mean i honestly <laughs> I thought the article was more interesting than anything because it doesn't really do a great job of bolstering the idea that he was literally the dirtiest fighter of all time because there's actually a few instances where he was done dirty in the fucking in the in the article but in any case um the the trash talk stuff is actually more interesting so uh William Thompson was a dude from England obviously from Nottingham and he actually had two twins, and his birth name was Abednego, which was a name from the Bible. He and his two twin brothers, his tri triplet brothers, were all named biblical names. And for whatever reason, Abednego was somehow bastardized or changed to Bendigo, and that's what he went by as far as his nickname. Um, but he was about middleweight-sized. And he wound up taking on a dude named Big Ben Kant. Um, and of course, I closed it. So let me go right back to it here. But he took on a dude named Big Ben Kant, who was much bigger than he was. Ben Kant was like a legitimate heavyweight back in the day, a good 220, 230 pounds, six foot one. Ben Digo was like five foot seven, 160 pounds, five foot eight, something like that. <clears throat> but he had a very peculiar style. And one of the reasons why he was named as, I guess, a dirty fighter, which seemed kind of funny to me in this article, was because of his style, did a lot of ducking and weaving and, I guess, circling around his opponents. We were just talking about Bam Rodriguez and shit earlier. <laughs> but I don't, I mean, that doesn't and really That seem... was definitely something not seen in the early 1800s. Right. Now, oh. to me, that doesn't sound dirty whatsoever. But back then, you know, we're also talking about uh, a time when it was considered gentlemanly or proper to engage one another rather yep. than box around or something like that but you know you wanted to see these dudes scrap you didn't want to see all that type of shit so um basically as far as the trash talk goes we're obviously going back to the 1830s here and when we're talking about trash talk that's obviously far removed from like modern day trash talk and i guess you could wonder i don't know where this trash talk started oh, talking about some old lingo right now well, back in the day, in order for these fights to happen, um, you kind of wonder, like, it, it wasn't like it is now. There's obviously not TV. There's not radio. There's not these kinds of things for fights, for a word to get around. But there was print. Mm -hmm. And so fighters would call each other out in print sometimes. But in these circles in, like, the 1830s, at this point, the circles in boxing were small enough at this point that you probably would run into each other sooner or later, whether it was in training or something like that, rather than having to call each other out in print. Although, again, that did happen. Nonetheless, uh, just like in olden times when somebody would challenge somebody else to like a duel, um, there is kind of like a thread of truth to that old stereotype about a dude coming up and fucking bap, you know, with a glove, slapping him with a glove or something like that. There is some thread of truth to that, supposedly, that at least when it came to challenging a duel, it would be like, uh, if there wasn't a slap, there would be an insult. Like a dude would come up and insult another guy. Yeah. And that would lead to be like, you can't fucking insult me like that in public. Well, you know, that's, that was a whole Simpsons episode, remember? 
<laughs> yes, that's true. Yeah, do you remember that one where he came with the glove slap and then he had to move to another town because he slapped the wrong dude and they were gonna, he wanted to have a duel with him? Yep. <laughs> well, and I mean, there's some truth to it. And it's so true. that's then he slapped, least... and then Jimmy Carter was about to challenge him to a duel too, and he ran away. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, think about it. That shit would be pretty fucking insulting, I guess. If somebody like took off their shirt and just whipped you with it in front of everybody, you'd be like, What the fuck? Now I gotta fight you. What? Oh my god, yeah, man. I mean, I mean, of course. Of course. And then of course, back in like the eighteen hundreds, like nobody's got any fucking thing to do. So if there's like a fight, yeah, I mean, bro, you're surprised. You're like, oh, to be honest, I'm surprised they fighting about that. Bro, you I got fucking Wilhelmina. You got Wilhelmina about to stop churning butter, right? Yeah. Fucking Brutus is going to stop milking the fucking cow. There, everybody's going to come running into the town square and shit. Pillories, fucking me yeah. advice. Oh, yeah, they're taking out pistols and they go and they and they going at it for that one. For anything, somebody's shouting at each other. There's probably like, what? Let's go, you know. There's nothing going on in the 1800s, so they're probably trying to fucking figure this out. But anyways, when it came to tr- talking trash and calling each other out, there, you know, this there was some manner of that at this time. In any case, apparently William Thompson Bendigo did a little bit of that too. And so when they first fought uh, Ben Kant in 1835, um, there was this kind of back and forth at the time about who actually possessed the heavyweight championship or the championship of England, but it definitely was not on the line at this point. And in 1835, when they fought, apparently Thompson pissed off Ben Kant enough that after 22 rounds, Ben Kant between rounds, supposedly he was pissed off enough by all the movement and ducking around and shit talk that he went and hit him as William Thompson was sitting in his own corner and, and was disqualified and lost on a foul. And so a couple of years later, they rematched for the championship uh, of England. But I mean, again, there was a lot of kind of back and forth as to who was really champion. And occasionally people would claim to be champion and it would be accepted in some circles, but not accepted in others. So this was advertised, I guess you could say is for the heavyweight champion uh, championship. And this time it actually, uh, this is when the tables turned on William Thompson because another thing that William Thompson was known for doing apart from the ducking around and spinning and shit like that was if he had started getting hit, if he had started taking punches, he would just fall to the ground without being hit, which at this time, again, yeah, it was not only illegal, but it was considered like one of the worst things that you can do like Mm -hmm. in boxing because there was some amount of wrestling and grappling uh, allowed there was some amount of tripping and shit like that are allowed depending on who was refereeing and where it was taking place but another element to this this that was actually really interesting was that william thompson was part of a gang and his gang used to come around with him to fights and they would hang around and threaten people including officials and other opponents and shit like that And so in any case, uh, that's also what was happening during the fight. And what would happen is William Thompson would fall to the ground. And if somebody would threaten to disqualify him, his gang would go over and start threatening and start acting all menacing and shit. So they'd be like, whoa, whoa, all right, all right, all right. We're just going to start this over. And anytime somebody went to the ground, whether involuntary or getting hit, not getting hit, voluntary, the round was over. And so the action had to stop and there was a break. So that would be an incredible way of getting, you know, some, some 
getting a break, getting your second wind or whatever. And that's apparently what William Thompson used to do all the time. And in this rematch against Ben Kant a couple of years later, uh, he supposedly just kept going to the fucking floor after like round 60. So they were 75 rounds in. And apparently, even despite the fact that William Thompson's gang was running around the ring and threatening people, they still disqualified him and he lost against Ben Kant. So, sorry, one last one. Fast forward seven years later and they fought for a third time. And actually, Ben Kant was disqualified again in this one because he, they claimed that he went down without striking, striking him. But in this fight, he was lifting him all over the ring, trying to crush him against the ropes, smushing him, strangling him, all sorts of shit. And Ben Kant got away with all sorts of crazy fouls. But anyway, the trash talk does figure into this because in an era when, you know, there really wasn't trash talk like that going on because it just wasn't really considered. And on top of that, boxing was kind of dangling precariously uh, in England where it had really rose to prominence around the turn of the 19th century and then was starting to fall out of favor. And the way that the, these fights wound up because they were extremely popular in English society at this time, mm -hmm. the way that they wound up so controversial that many people believe many historians believe that how shitty they were led directly to the Marcus of Queensbury rules being developed in, I think it was 1860. Oh. So in the 1850s and 1860, there was a big like reformation or uh, I guess uh, just kind of a big redo of a lot of shit going on in boxing in England. And many people believe that those fights were why. Well, absolutely, man. And um, the one thing I'll mention about Ben, ben Kant is that in the one thing I do remember, <clears throat> because in the same book that we bring up in almost every uh in every episode at one point or another the the book that i read cover to cover all the time as a kid the pictorial history of boxing by um nat fleischer and uh sam andre i think um they, their first section is all bare knuckle especially about like the bare knuckle heavyweight division and they have a big feature on the fight between um ben dingo thompson and ben Kahn. And they talk about all those fights. They have like descriptions, the drawings, all the other stuff in it. I love that whole thing. And I used to read all those, like the whole bare knuckle era cover to cover because it's fascinating to hear what was going on for scrapping in the late 1700s, very early 1800s, you know, the first American yeah. champion, all this other stuff. It's cool. But one thing I do remember that was really striking is that after Ben Kant died, they have a photo of him in his death mask. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I, yeah, I do. There were actually... Uh... <laughs> I don't know. It's like for some reason that just like stuck out to me. And I'm just like, I just remember that. They were like, there he is in his death pass. And it kind of just looks like, I don't know. It was like the face that I guess he was supposed to have or some shit. But Yeah. If you were, if you had enough money, somebody would make a death mask for you, I guess, back in the day. But interesting. Um, but I mean, uh, yeah, it's, a lot of them wound up looking really freaking creepy. But at the same time, I guess the idea was that it was better than looking at like a corpse face. Or some yeah. Shit. But there was it's it's an interesting era from with Ben uh Ben Dingo Thompson. Um who the the guy that that had the longest fight the longest fight on record, Def Burke. Yeah, Andy Bowen. Um and Byron Simon Byron was another one around that time. Um Tom King. 
Um, we mentioned Daniel Mendoza, who came a little before them. Um, you know, it's, it's really cool. Yeah, and I mean, more than just a little piece of trivia, but trivia nonetheless, Daniel Mendoza was the first Jew to ever be granted audience with the King of England, which yeah. is with like direct audience, which first of all is obviously really sad, but nonetheless significant. Um, so, you know, pretty crazy shit. Absolutely. Um, with that being said, we're actually going to go fast forward a, a bunch of years. Actually, probably yeah, I took it way back. So we can, we, no, 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 to, yeah, you took it way, way, way back. And that was really free to bring cool it back. Because, but no, we're going to wind back up to the, um, my favorite decade, the 1980s. And we're actually going to intertwine our last, our last, um, subject that we talked about, the Kronk Gym with this one. So the year is 1985. I'm going to do three subjects on this one really quick. The year is 1985, and um, by 1985, the Kronk Gym is thriving. But they had a rough year in 1985. I would so I would say, wouldn't you say so? Because they they suffered two big L's, significant L's. I was going to say McCr uh, McCrory uh, and Hearns. Uh, what's that? Hearns and McCrory. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say McCrory, and then I guess yeah, I guess Hearns would be a pretty bad. I mean, it was an incredible fight, but yeah, it was a pretty bad loss. Yeah, but. And considering with both of those happening, um, the first one I'll bring up, it doesn't reference both of them, since this fight happened on the undercard of um, Hearns Durant. Well, actually, no, I take that back. The first one I'm going to bring up actually is before 1985. So I, I kind of fucked it up. Um, <laughs> it's okay. It's still 80s, though. We're still it's in still the 80s. still the 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it still references a Detroit fighter. Um, years before our buddy Anthony Hembrick uh, did, you know, did his own version of Beat Street. Uh, on USA television and uh, against Book Award, there was a fighter by the name of Alvin Two Sweet Hayes. You remember Alvin Two Sweet Hayes? Yeah, we brought. Well, we briefly brought him up in the in the first Kronk. Yeah. The, for he was a, he was a popular Detroit fighter from uh, the early '80s who had a lot of prominence, and he was very very flamboyant for the time. You know, even for the '80s at that point, and a big trash talker at that too. I mean, he had every right to be. He was very popular. He had the lanky built up. Tommy Hearns except he was a lightweight and he was knocking the hell out of everybody his biggest win at that point was um a, a washout over um Edwin Virouette so anyways now this is big time on the undercard of Hearns Duran he's fighting against Kronk stand standout Jimmy Paul uh, a lot of trash talk before the fight about what he's going to do to Paul yada 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 and then before the fight this is what I'm talking about man I said before Hembrick this dude puts on the most ridiculous show you have ever seen with the dancing all right, he comes out there cutting a rug, jigging everything. But what makes it even better, he's wearing a full costume. Like he's he, he's like in a Zorro outfit, except it's pink. He has the, the mask over there. He has the, the whole the cape on and this whole thing. And he has this routine that he goes on with his trainer, mind you. And they're using the, and remember you were just talking about using like the, uh, the towel to slap somebody? Trainer's slapping him and he's doing like spins off of it when he hits like in rhythm, boom, like that. It looks like a whole, you know, soul train routine. You would think they were going down to the line, the you know, with the Michael Jackson. I swear to God, it was awesome. But the the announcers didn't think it was awesome. You know, all the crumb mudging like old timers over there were kind of making fun of it. Or do you oh, think he could get away on. with this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, do you think he what is this? I don't know. You think he can get away with this in Fall River? No, I don't think so. Like, yeah, whatever. So, long story short, after that whole routine, after that whole spiel. Um, too sweet ends up getting the hell knocked out of him badly <laughs> against Jimmy Paul. 
Like it, it, it was bad, man. In front of like, you know, that was the biggest audience Too Sweet ever was in front of. He made a big deal before the fight, was talking a lot of trash. This was a big, you know, um, inner city fight between two Detroit guys to begin with. Kronk representing the Paul and uh, Kronk, Jesus. Jimmy Paul representing the Kronk gym and Too Sweet Hayes being from the, uh, being a Detroit staple himself would Kronk ties to a degree. And Paul obliterated him. Paul ended up becoming IBF champion. And um, Alvin Hayes, unfortunately, just, you know, succumbed to other stuff. Moving on, though, as we were going to talk about now, 1985, the buildup between Tommy Hearns and Marvin Hagler. Now, everybody talks about the fight because it's such an incredible fight, obviously, about how, you know, about, you know, the greatest round in boxing history, greatest nine minutes, yada, yada, yada. People almost forget the lead up to the fight, how much shit Tommy Hearns was talking Dude, well, and I mean, I mean, I know you got to build a fight and everything like that, but like they went on a whole promotional tour across the country. Hagler is the type of guy that gets moody to begin with and doesn't really want to do this. And Hearns, because he wants to sell the fight and at the same time antagonize Hagler, has to be has to be the mouthpiece. <laughs> yeah, and and Tommy had like a kind of high pitched voice, you know what I mean? Like he was yeah. like uh, he had a kind of funny voice. And he had this was right around when he had the Jerry curl. Too. So I mean, it's, it's I mean, this was the mid '80s, man. The Jericho was where it was at at that point. Yeah, dude. Like a lot of people had that shit, but like, uh, you know, I'm I'm not gonna lie, I'm somewhat torn when it comes to Tommy. Sometimes he's still my favorite fighter, but every so often somebody's gonna be like, "Oh, dude, did you know he was like a volunteer cop?" And I'm like, "Don't talk to me about this. <laughs> this is we don't mention this in my house, okay? We don't mention this stage of Tommy Hearn's life." Now, in uh, you know, right around the the Hagler fight too, he got pretty vocal. Like he, uh, Very, seemed like oh, he was yeah. feeling his oats a little bit, and I think probably as a result of knocking Roberto Duran damn near clean out. You know, I mean, and and rightly so, because I mean, it 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 makes sense. You know, it 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 almost doesn't make logical sense to a lot of people I know because they're like, all right, well, Roberto Duran struggles with Marvin Hagler. But then Tommy Hearns knocks him out. But then Marvin Hagler beats the crap out of Tommy Hearns, you know. And then there you bring Ray Leonard. I mean, that's the why mix. they were the legit kings. But yeah, that's the whole yeah. point was that like you know the styles make fights and blah blah blah, and that's why it's fun. But nonetheless, you know, after knocking out Roberto Duran, I'm sure Tommy Hearns was just like, dude, you know, I just fucking I fucked this guy up, bro. Like you got nothing for me. So I'm sure he probably did feel that way. But nonetheless, he, he got a little loose. He got a little loose with his mouth. I mean, if you watch the HBO, um, the HBO document when they did the legendary nights, they show clips of the press conference. And you hear Hearns in his uh high pitch voice, like you said. He's standing over Hagler. Hagler is just absolutely brooding. You can you know he wants to be in Cape Cod or wherever he would train in the trenches and just be away from everybody. And Hearns instead, and he's just sitting there because he's not much of a talker, and Hearns is sitting there. That's right. In three rounds, three rounds, I'm going to, you know, four rounds, I'm going to knock you out. And pop, pop, you're going to see. And he's doing the hand movement and all that. And Hagler is just like, you see like the vein throbbing in his forehead. It's just, you know, he doesn't want to do this shit. I don't blame him. I think I would lose my mind going on a, how many tour things that they did? Dude, they did. 30, like they went all over the country, man. That yep. was one of the craziest cross country, you know, Actually, like this, what they're doing today with Canelo and Triple G, it's not on the level of this in terms of how, where they're going. But like, it, it reminded me of that because they have. But to it's at least closer, yeah. 
because they got to do face. They did a face off the other day. They did another one. They have to do another one today at Yankee Stadium. And like they're doing the things just like just like today. They're they're yeah. doing the shit where they're uh, filming commercials where they're yeah. like shirtless and all fucking sprayed with water and they're like face to face and shit. Dude, I'm sure that shit got heated, you know. And then on top of that, you know, you got to fight this dude in like two months, and you're just like, what the fuck? That was probably uncomfortable. But then also they did the uh, the tax commercial because I was fight, gonna say, man, no one can touch the tax commercial. The fight, the fight is on tax day, April fifteenth. You know, the universal you know, every year tax day or whatever. And so that's one of the that's one of the best commercials ever. I I will I gotta give top rank that shit. I gotta give Bob Arum that shit because he figured into the promotion that, that was probably Irvin Rudd. That was probably Irvin Rudd. That's that true. It might have been. That's yeah, that's probably true. Well, in any case, employing Irving Rudman yes. was was Bob Arum's genius. But uh but yeah, dude, they're sitting there going, like, don't forget to do your taxes. And then they they're each in yeah, dude, that's a fucking great commercial. Yeah, that's so dude, you file your taxes, then come watch the fight. Oh, why awesome. knock him out? No, you're gonna knock me out. Awesome. Blah, blah, blah. But I mean, we oh, all know. Also, the also on the rebroadcast of um, Hearns Duran. Remember when they had them both in studio, and That's Tommy's right. talking yeah. a little bit of shit then too, and and Marvin's just like, okay, all right, all right, you know, like. Well, not only was Hearns trying to prove the fight, you know, he was feeling it. He was on some major momentum. Yeah, the Duran knockout was incredible. Knocking Duran out, no one had done that to Duran before. Even if Duran was perceived to be a little bit past it or whatever, nobody had ever like treated him like just an absolute ragdoll. Dude was turned into 154 pounds of just melted pudding. You know what I mean? Just and uh, yeah, I never he, forget you know, they, they stand him up, point. and he's like, he, it's almost like he's asking like, what the, where am I? Where? What, I what mean, happened? dude, you know he. Um, imagine getting hit with that right hand you know it, it's like having it's like having a buddy rich jump solo just straight up on your brain at that point and there's nothing you can do you scrambled completely gone um so yeah he was definitely feeling himself considering Hagler's struggle with duran Hagler never looked that ferocious the way hearns did hearns is moving up he, you know he's taller than him got the longer reach and he thinks he's invincible can knock anybody out you know he was, and he was, he was saying it. I'm sure he believed what he was saying, but all you did was just piss off the bull, man. And Hagler just, oh my God, the punches that he received, if you just watch that first round and you just see the way Hearns, like, of course he broke his hand. Hearns was fastballing everything, just pow, pow. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, dude, no human has any right taking those type of punches. You know what I mean? But Yeah, dude. That Yeah, and I mean, it... I guess just imagine if his hand had not broken, that would have been who knows, who knows. Yeah, I think it was it would have won a few more rounds. He still would have gone overwhelmed. But I mean, yeah. But I do know yeah. that he had had uh, issues with his hands, you know, in his career. A lot of punchers do, like a lot of a lot of guys who throw like that too. A lot of I should say a lot of fighters who throw like that too. Um, but yeah, dude, Tommy probably got got a little, just a little bit you know pissed marvin off and you know you, you don't want to piss a person like marvin Hagler off that just was the wrong thing Hagler was already perpetually pissed off right <laughs> you know he was it was notorious for him to to develop to develop a hatred for his opponent because he would he would like lock himself in in the middle usually in the winter time in like in cape cod in some like nowhere out in the beach area which i can tell you might be the single worst type of conditions you can imagine 
New England out in the beach area in the wintertime is just a big no-no. And, um, you know, goes out there, stays away from everybody, doesn't even talk to his trainers. Um, sometimes talks to the seagulls and he starts naming because he just has nothing around him. And then, yeah, all he does is think about his opponent. Just you know, walks around pissed off thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it. The last thing you need to do is give him added, added ammunition when all he's doing is thinking about destroying you to begin with. So, you know. Big mistake. Big I mean, mistake. hey, dude, he did what he could. That right hand was massive. He did what he it, could. It was, and you was... know what? It, it, like, you know, put them, put their names in the history book is one of the most ferocious fights in history that people look upon. It is going to go on forever. You know, years after we're gone, people are still going to be watching it for the first time or are going to be astounded by its, by its violence, by, the, you know, the way it went, everything. And that's the beauty of this era that we have television and, you know, video and all that. Thank God we had that recorded. Yeah, because the, all the eras that I would talk about, Zell Graziano, for example, or like major fights like that, we can't look back on those and like try to, you know, watch them and enjoy it. They were never recorded you know, or if they were, they're on some shim sham that you can kind of see some grainy footage in the background of it. So it's like, you know, at least we grew up in this era where we can enjoy these. We have them at our fingertips whenever we want. Um, but moving on again, now we're moving out to the December. Kronk team is trying to rebuild. They got another big fight now. This is a unification fight for the welterweight championship. Milton McCrory against Donald Curry. And it's kind of the same thing. Curry is a mild-mannered guy. Doesn't like to talk a lot. You know what I mean? Kind of just, you know, handles his business in the ring and goes about it like that. Looked upon at this point as a pound for pound great that's potentially um, could be the guy to unseat Hagler one day. McCrory, on the other hand, was maybe not looked upon at the same point as Curry, but still another like budgeting star that, you know, this was a big fight. All right. He was a part of the Kronk team. And this was his chance to like, you know, put himself in the limelight, not really be in Tommy Herms' shadow. So before the fight in the lead up to it, they were talking a lot of shit, but not just, not Curry, McCrory. McCrory was talking a lot of junk about, specifically Curry's heart. Can Donald Curry have, you know, does he have a lot of heart? He can't take it, all this other stuff, yada, yada, yada. But what made it even worse, it wasn't just McCrory that was pushing this. McCrory had his little tag team, you know, his little, all of his buddies from the Kronk gym out there talking shit too in the audience. Every press conference, all of them were over there, all, you know, usually appearing on the undercards. Um, a lot of the lower name fighters that we mentioned, some of them on the last show, they'd be out there in the audience. Yeah, tell him, champ, blah, 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 you know, Curry sucks. Even Hurley Sneed, a bantamweight who would eventually fight Luis Cito Espinosa and get curb stomped, um, went up to Curry's trainer, Paul Reyes, and told him, uh, speak English. Because Reyes was Mexican-American, you know, had an accent, stuff like that. Like, they were talking some serious shit, right? I see you shaking your head from that. Yeah, like, it's... Clearly, this was getting under Curry's skin. You know what I mean? And like they always said, like my mom used to say, everybody always said, be careful about the quiet ones, right? Like you don't want to put, you know, press the bull. Especially a guy like Curry. Like Curry was already, like the way he fought, he was a beautiful fighter. The way he held his hands, everything, he was almost perfect. And, but you never saw him like lose control or feel like he was out of control. He always just was like in the pocket and just took care of his business. This one, slowly he was fuming, he was fuming. And so... I'll give you a quote here because um, I actually had to bring out an old magazine for myself. Mike Tyson's first issue <laughs> where they cover Curry McCrory in this. But um, yeah, in see, we're, of- see, we're actually, you know, we're, we're researching here. We're yeah, sure. always <laughs> legit research. 
In the weeks leading up to the fight, the basic hype seemed to be a question of who had heart under fire and who did it. McCrory appeared to be the instigator in lighting Curry's ire, but his future conqueror said it was Emmanuel Stewart, master of Kronk's boxing army, putting words in Milton's mouth for encouragement because he really didn't want to fight me. In the final press conference, 48 hours before the first bell, the usually inflappable Curry made a strong point he found when he was finally fed up with Milton's snide insinuations. Insinuations. Yeah, insinuations. Jesus Christ, how can I not say that word right now? Insinuations. (laughs) Notably, Milton declaring, I've been second fiddle to everyone. Second to Tommy, second to Donald. Hearns blew his chances. This is my chance, and all the intensity will come out when I knock Curry out. Looking directly at McCrory, sitting on the right side of the dais, Curry glared. And this is what I point where I said, don't poke the bear. Now he's pissed off. Let me emphasize that I will defeat your string bean heart. I'm going to knock you out in the seventh or eighth round, so be ready, buddy. I'm going to take your string bean heart with a knockout, and a string bean heart is a little bitty heart. Turning to the heckling cronk boxes in the audience, Curry added, and the rest of you cronk fighters better be ready too, because I ain't three with you yet. I'll show you that Curry has heart. Well, it didn't take no seven or eight rounds. It certainly didn't, man, because after that... Um... Man, that's, that's one of the most he had no business going on after that first knockdown fights ever, dude. Dude, the thing with that is that, like, exactly, man. Like, Curry, he, he gets up and he's like, he kept his composure. Yeah. He kept his composure and he was like, boxing the first round. First round, he clearly had control, but it was kind of like, he didn't expect what was coming. That second round, bro, that left hook, it was that left hook, man, that sweeping boom. Like, just, it was so perfect. You know, if you yeah, want to look it's like his arms and animated, like you know, swinging and shit, like in midair. Like they should have said he had no business, they had no business letting that fight continue after he got hit with that first hook. He was cooked, completely cooked. And then when he got up and Mills Lane, you know, let it continue, and then that follow up right hand folded just him backward like folded, a chair, just folded him like a piece of paper, just yeah, straight up lawn chair status. Boom, done, awful. McCrory was never the same. Just... Well, dude, you know, Prime, whenever that was, Prime Lone Star Cobra was a force to be reckoned with, dude. An incredible, an incredible amateur. We talked about him a couple on a couple different shows, but um, you know, incredible amateur. Favored, favored to be uh, the gold medalist for the AD Olympics. Just, just so skilled, so technically sound, uh, a really good fighter. A couple of glaring flaws that wound up catching up with him, but for the time being man so good so so good and i also i think just because like you know a lot of a lot of the fans who are like maybe just a little bit older than we are and remember him from that time period are probably you know listening to this or looking upon this fairly fondly too because it was a a good you know uh, that kind of mid 80s was a kind of an uptick and i think a really i mean and it was exciting to think about it like yeah. you know the welterweight division was in kind was kind of in need of a star you know it always been like a high high profile division and it didn't really have a star in itself once leonard and hearns moved on and curry had solidified himself at that point everyone looked upon hey man this guy might be the future of boxing like not only might he beat Hagler, he might beat him all after a while because he looked invincible at that point but um little did anybody know this was the beginning of the end of him you know what i mean in terms of being at the uh, the peak of his powers, because soon after this, he lost to Lloyd Hunnigan, 
in a massive, massive upset. Probably one of the biggest of the 80s, if not the biggest. And um, his career really never recovered after that. He still had success. Still had success, but he never, every time he, you know, it almost seemed like he might be back to that cusp. It, like when he fought Donald Curry, not when he fought Donald, when he fought um, Mike McCallum, um, beautiful fight to watch for as long as it lasted. And he was actually outboxing McCallum. Yeah, he was doing, he was putting, doing what he did. It was just, he unfortunately. Was, he, I mean, he was looking, he was looking like a prime Curry in that fight, man. He was, you know, McCallum. snatcher was nobody to be trifled with, you know? No, not at all, man. And McCallum was in his prime too. And they were like, the, the moves that they were putting, the feints, everything, the combinations, it was gorgeous to watch. But Curry was getting the better of it. And I think you could tell that Sugar Ray Leonard was even enjoying it because I don't think he liked McCallum too much. And you hear him like kind of like giving shade and McCallum throughout the fight until all of a sudden, boom, same thing. Curry gets caught again and just flat out, 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 out. Well, and, and that's and that's like height of his punching power, McCallum, too, because yeah. he's, yeah, wasn't quite at middleweight yet and just an absolute fucking beast. Totally. But absolute beast. I thought that was good. And also, I was just going to say, because since you brought up, uh, since you brought up, um, God, you just brought him up a second ago, fucking the dude who upset Curry. Um, oh, Lloyd Hunnigan. Dude. Yeah, Hunnigan. I was just going <laughs> to say, God, dude, the fucking ragamuffin man, one of the all time great nicknames, also, since we're going through great nicknames from the <laughs> 80s. That's a wonderful nickname, man. And he was a trash talker himself. Um, I remember I talked to um, to Mark Breland one time about him. And um, Breland was like, oh, man, you know, he was running his mouth before the fight, talking a lot of shit, yada, 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 all this stuff. And he was like, you're about his height. So this is what I did. And Breland walks up on me and he like put his, he was like, and he's like, I walked up on him like this. And he put his like, he bumped me with his chest. And then he's looked down staring down at me and i looked up at him because he's so much taller <laughs> and i just went like i gulped <laughs> and yeah i looked at him and i like he was like i looked down at him i was like i'm gonna knock you out blah 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 and that's what he did man he absolutely pulverized uh honey and honey at that point was past it but i mean still brutal he was fun for a little bit yeah dude that's that's a good one because that's probably not one that i would have that i would have looked at anyway however i'd also just kind of left off 80s and 90s because i figured that those those were eras that you were definitely gonna have control over for sure (laughs) um here let's see all right so one that i thought would be funny especially because it is uh it's just recent enough that you know a lot of people who are around now are going to remember they're going to think it's funny you know blah 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 uh but one that i thought that was really good as far as trash talk going wrong and definitely going badly wrong in front of eighty thousand people oh <laughs> there's only one thing this could be there's only a little pull and a push a little little pull and a yeah, dude, George Groves getting absolutely flat. Oh, yeah, that's right. By Carl Froch in their rematch. Yeah, dude. So I mean, I remember I remember Carl Froch coming up and I remember not really, I'm not going to lie, dude, I didn't really think that much of him when I had oh, first yeah, I think. when I had first seen him. I was kind of just like he's not that fast. You know, he hits pretty good, but he's not he very fast. Awkward. 
yeah, he's he's kind of got a funky style and we're in rhythm. His footwork is kind of slow. It's not that great. You know, what where where are we going with this guy? But obviously, you know, the Jean Pascal fight, he showed a lot of stuff over the over like the a uh, uh, couple of years there, mm-hmm. and clearly showed that he is a very good fighter. And going into that first George Groves fight, Carl Froch had lost to Andre Ward, and he had lost to Mikkel Kessler. And so Mikkel Kessler, obviously, at that time, too, considered elite talent, uh, incredible jab. I mean, basically, as far as straight up one, two fighters go, really good fighter. But, you know, getting outside of that, you know, adding any nuance to it, and he struggled. Mm -hmm. But still, you know, uh, beat Carl Froch in a very good fight, but then he lost to Andre Ward, Frotch that is. No shame in that. You know, he gave a good account of himself, but just was not on that level. Again, no shame. But uh, George Groves, undefeated. He was like 19-0, 20-0, or something like that going into their first fight. Uh, and he put on a really good show. He uh, clearly showed a lot of Carl Frotch's limitations, you know, uh, he hurt Carl Frotch pretty good early on in the fight. And then on top of that, you know, he was he was doing very well in the fight. But then Carl Frotch uh, basically did what Carl Frotch does. And he weathered the storm and stopped him a couple a couple rounds later, except for the stoppage was controversial. Um, George Groves looked hurt, but looked more or less able to continue but there was kind of like a degree of, all right, well, if you're protecting the fighter, I get it, but they had to rematch, you know, with a fight like that and the one guy gets hurt, but then he controversially stops the other guy. You have to rematch that shit. So they did rematch it. It was a big production. It was about six months uh, later. So they had a handful of months of buildup and right around this time, um, HBO had been doing for a few years that show face off with max kellerman and so max kellerman he pulled up the motherfucking chair put it backwards like he was a g sitting over the chair all right now guys you know and it was like awkward as fuck kind of nerdy but fine it worked and there were a couple of pretty fun and funny moments from that show but then sky sports had done their own version of face off which was i wrote it down what was it called the gloves are off i couldn't remember what it was and so Sky Sports started doing, it was literally like the exact same thing, except for with Johnny Nelson. And obviously, instead of Max Kellerman, you know, the whole backwards chair bit and shit like that, whatever. And so they're sitting at a table or some shit like that. And they're going back and forth, sniping the most mundane, stupid shit talk on the face of the planet, except for, you know, George Groves is getting some snipes in there. It's just, they're like, they're just weak, to be honest. But still, George Groves has been throughout this entire promotional cycle talking shit. You know, I'm going to knock him out. He should never stop me. Blah, blah, blah. It was bullshit stoppage. All the sorts of shit. But the climax, of course, was the whole right towards the end. Johnny Nelson's like, all right, you guys are going to shake hands. And George Groves just like gets up. And it's like, he's just like, fool's just yeah. standing there with his hand out for like 30 seconds and shit. Carl Froch is like, I'm going to take my time, wipe the sweat off of my hand, dust myself off, get up, look a little composed so we can do some handshake. And I I don't know if that just pissed George Groves off or what. (laughs) George Groves fucking pulls him across the table. And Carl Froch is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) And he stops himself. 
<laughs> it was, you want to you want to pull about you want to you want to pull about we have a little pull and a push <laughs> and he pulls him back over and it's like the most awkward like chest bumping moment you know have you ever like watched a fight and you're watching two people and they're like pushing pushing push chest bump push and you're just like if it gets to that point somebody has to swing and totally. if you're not then you're just a couple of fucking goofballs you know and that's literally kind there, of there was a guy was. at the hall of fame like that the other day that like he there was a drunk dude that stumbled into his table and he didn't want him there with his with his couple of his girlfriends or whatever and he he yells instead of like he looks at the guy like he's gonna confront him and he slightly shoved him and then he screamed extremely loud so he can get people's attention get away from me get away from me and then people, and then like you stand there, but he clearly yelled that so he can get like people's attention to get the guy out of there. Instead yeah. of like, hold me know, back, hold yeah, me back, somebody come yeah, here, yeah, hold yeah. me back. And I remember me and my buddies were just kind of looking at him like, dude, you might like really, if you didn't do something, you should have just done it. No, instead, you scream exactly. and make a scene. So people if, it, if it's away. escalated to physical, it's simply escalated to physical. Let's fucking stop the nonsense. But that's pretty much the whole handshake bit, dude, was that it went, but I will admit it was hilarious. It made the rounds on social media. We saw clips, GIFs, you know, memes. It was great. It really was great. And nobody talks about it really anymore. So it was fantastic. And then Carl Fratch, Carl Fratch again did his thing where he just weathers the storm. And then, of course, super memorably in eight rounds, knocked George Groves like, like. Oh, he sparked him, man. Absolutely. That was bad. a beautiful knockout. Real bad. And like and, you, Frotch was and so you know what's awkward, hilarious? Was, I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, One last thing, but what's fucking hilarious is that you are going to have to scour the internet for clean clips of that knockout because really? Sky Sports will fucking attack your ass if you post that shit. Wow. Or at least they'll attack your ass if your name is Patrick Connor and you run a fucking boxing <laughs> history account because <laughs> multiple times they've been like, Oh, no. well, they see how many people you're generating and watching. Yeah, they're not going to play that. <laughs> but but honestly, on on YouTube though too, unless they've put a newer version up, like somewhat recently, like in the last mm -hmm. like, maybe year or two, for a long ass time, they would not post that fucking fight, and like you just could not find clips of the knockout. Like I mean, oh, whatever. Yeah. You don't have to go like crazy, fucking you know lusting after watching that knockout it was just weird just because every so often i like to watch fights and i'd be like yo where's this fight that was a vicious knockout and it's fun to watch <laughs> sorry i had to go on that sky sports well i mean yeah, absolutely and it's it's yeah you've definitely been unfairly treated over the years bro everything you've touched <laughs> is zapped <laughs> it's messed up <laughs> helping you fools out or just get cooked every single time they're like you're just on everybody's list at one point. Patrick Comer, God damn it. Hold up. Oh, bro. I, I, uh, a little promotional company that rhymes with shop, shop shank is, has been taken, has been going after my Instagram account, which is really weird because that's not even like, but anyway. I've got a photo of you in his office. Just to stare at it with a bullet. They are, <laughs> they are on it, but whatever. That's cool. Um, one dude I was going to bring up briefly, I thought this one would have been funny. Uh, back in the 40s, a fighter by the name of George Sugar Costner. Okay. George Costner, all right. George Costner, yep. And in the Battle of the Sugars, 
Um, he fought Sugar Robinson twice. And I love I love George Costner. If you you know, um, very very tough contender. Nobody is ever going to bring George Costner up on any other podcast whatsoever. Probably not. <laughs> um, George Sugar Costner was a uh, popular fighter from the uh, from the forties. Um, very very tough 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 contender at the time between lightweight to welterweight even midweight at some point fought them all and had immense immense success against a lot of guys beat kid gavelin beat a lot of you know great all-time great fighters and great fighters um and even if he lost he usually wouldn't you know it wasn't like he was blown away or anything he always gave a really good account of himself the only guy he always he does he was blown away by was sherry robinson and they always, the goal to saying is, man, don't piss off a person that's not really talking shit to begin with, if they're just trying to go about their business. And um, Costner, unfortunately, um, wasn't about that. Well, dude, I mean, right around this era, if you're talking about like late 40s, early 50s, that was not really a version of Ray Robinson that you should have been messing around with. Nah. I mean, he had bad nights. He had bad outings, of course. But, you know, right around his, like, welterweight or, like, lighter middleweight, like, brain, that was a scary mm -hmm. guy. That was not a guy you'd want to be messing around with. And on top of that, he did have ego. That's one thing that I know that, like, Ray Robinson gets, uh, he gets a little bit too much credit, you know, like, in from, histor from history types, I think, as far as, like, oh, he could do it all and he could, you know, fantastic guy. When now I think we know better, like he was kind of an icky guy in his personal life, not a super great guy. And mm -hmm. on top of that, when it came to being divas, when it came to being, you know, pushing around your weight in terms of star power and shit like that, he did that all of the time. And so, you know, I mean, whether or not you think that's good or acceptable, I guess is up to you, but it, it's a little bit more gray area than, you know, some people remember. Totally. And Costner at that point, man, had run a very good record up. He beat a lot of really good fighters and a couple of them a lot quicker than Robinson had. For example, a fighter uh, by the name of Sheik Rangel, a fighter that I'm pretty sure no one else will ever bring up on a podcast besides us. Um, Costner had blown him out in only, I think, a round or two. I actually have a wire photo that I bought at the Hall of Fame from that fight. But, you know... Um, after, you know, running up a bunch of wins and just, you know, having the name Sugar as well, the stage was set that 19 was a 44-45. He was going to fight Robinson beforehand. Um, this first fight, Costner wasn't talking as much shit. All right. He, he was he was making a little bit of rumblings in the paper about being confident and stuff like that. But he was a little bit more reserved for the for most part. He said something to the effect of, um, you know, Robinson's always been my heroes since I, you know, since I first started fighting. But I understand I got to go through him if I got to, you know, be where I need to be at the top and yada, yada, yada. I'm confident I can beat him and I'm going to beat him, all the stuff. Um, didn't really quite turn out that way because, you know, Robinson, considering he's probably the greatest fighter that ever lived, even, you know, I'm sure he was a little perturbed that a person, a person of Robinson who's used to like bossing people around, used to just having everyone just kind of like, you know, worship at his fingertips and stuff like that. Having a guy who really hasn't proven himself to be your caliber talking a ton of shit. It's probably not going to go over well with you. You know what and I mean? Taking your nickname. And taking your nickname. Yes. Like who the hell is this guy? So of course, Robinson came out there a little bit quicker than he usually would instead of measuring somebody and he blasted Costner out really fast. You know what I mean? Which was an embarrassing loss. 
I mean, not embarrassing in the sense that you lost to Sugar and Robinson. It's just the fact that you got blasted in one round and you were like already looked upon as a future champion. And um, according to Robinson's ex-wife, she says that, um, what did she say? I hold up, I have to bring this up. Okay, it's right over here. According to Robinson's, uh, Robinson's wife, Edna Mae Robinson, who was featured prominently in um, the HBO documentary about Sugar Ray Robinson in the late 90s, she says, we attended a large celebration after the fight that was held in the cabaret room of one of the large hotels. Costner and his handlers were invited guests also. Costner came over to our table and congratulated Sugar on his victory and asked Sugar if he, and asked uh, Sugar would allow him to dance with me. Sugar then asked, honey, will you dance with this fellow so that we can both teach him some lessons in the same night? <laughs> Damn. Yeah, well, that's trash talk gone right. Yeah, right? Seriously. So, um, after a number of fights, and Costner ends up running up about an eight-fight winning streak, he ends up fighting Robinson again for another rematch. And um, for the rematch this time, uh, you know, he decided to ramp up the trash talk. At this point, anyone with an earshot of him was going to hear what he was going to do to Robinson. I'm going to do this and that to Robinson. I'm going to beat his ass. Blah, 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 blah. I'm going to knock him out. Like, he was very, very hyped about this one. At this point, Costner had beaten guys, I believe, like Kid Gavilan and Ike Williams. And, you know, he was looked upon as a legit, legit contender, if not, if not like, outright um, an uncrowned champion. So with all that being said, he's running his mouth. He's feeling really, really good. Even though Robinson blasts him in the first fight, Costner's feeling higher than ever. So... Within the earshot, he's telling everybody what he's going to do to Robinson, how he's going to knock him out, how he's the real sugar and all this stuff, send him to retirement. Robinson finally confronted him before the fight. And Robinson said something to the effect of, listen, man, I heard all this shit you've been talking in the papers and I don't appreciate it. Enough is enough. You know, I'm going to have to teach you a lesson for this, blah, blah, blah. Costner tries to back up a little bit his tracks. Oh, no, Ray. No, no, no. You don't understand. I'm trying to do that to build up the gate and just try to make more interest in the fight. You know, trying, trying to play it off now because I think he knows he has caught himself in some shit, right? <laughs> and Robinson, again, tells him, listen, I build up the gate by talking about my opponent and knowing and saying stuff like, hey, I feel he's going to give me trouble. He's a tough guy, all this stuff. I don't, build, I don't build up a fight by bringing him down like you are. And basically at this point, they storms off and Costner kind of knows that like, uh-oh, I pissed off the bull again. And in a rematch, the same thing, bro. Just one guy, like, it's not like Costner couldn't like handle all-time greats. He beat Ike Williams, all right? He beat Kid Gavlin. As great as those two guys were, they weren't Sugar Ray Robinson, and they weren't a pissed off Sugar Ray Robinson. And um, yeah, brutal shit, dude. Yeah, I mean, I guess just don't don't fuck with Sugar Ray, dude. At least, and that's funny that you say that too, because it's almost like there's like a an unspoken etiquette, kind of like I was talking about before, where with boxing mm -hmm. being this uh, you know sport of gentlemen or sport of nice people, or you know that probably goes back all the way to what we were talking about before in the 1800s, 1700s, actually would, would I think be when the term was originated, the fancy, uh, where it was basically, if you were a boxing fan or a spectator, you were probably upper class because you were somewhere where you could go off, uh, to some fucking random place where people could fight and not get caught. You know? So, I mean, like, anyway, it's, it's funny because there's this unspoken set of rules where Ray's like, Hey man, like, don't be talking shit. Like, I mean, let's let's talk about how good we are, how the how good the fight's gonna be, or something like that. And, yeah. 
when you know now we know better now a number of fighters have, not, pr- have proven otherwise that when you talk shit and draw a lot of attention that sometimes that can get you paid and dude like and robinson was the type of guy too that like if if he felt a certain way he might carry you like he carried henry armstrong because mm-hmm. armstrong was one of his heroes you know what i mean and that was one of it that was his last fight um He's, you know, did the same to other opponents. He felt, you know, a certain way toward, like he didn't want to hurt them too badly. Don't piss him off though. If you give him a reason, you know what I mean? Especially when you're, like you said, you're carrying his nickname. That's already going to like irk him to begin with. And now you're going out there running your mouth to everybody with an earshot about what you're going to do to him. I, after he already knocked you out in the first round in the first place, he's almost saying like, the is this guy even serious? Really? Like I got to deal with this even more now? So yeah, and, you know, in two minutes it was over. But I will say this for Costner before we move on. To his credit, um, after he was forced to retire at the young age of 26 because he was blind. He was he was blind in one eye. Um, commissions, doctors caught on to it, and his career was cooked. Um, it ends up happening to a lot of very prominent fighters, most notably guys like Gypsy Joe Harris and a few others. So after his career ended. Costa struggled for a bit, you know what I mean? As a lot of guys do after their careers are suddenly done. But what are you going to do with yourself, you know? To his credit, and I remember reading about this in one of the uh, old ring magazines from the 80s when they did a feature on him. And um, in, other, in other books, Costner went back to school. He got his GED. And then he ended up eventually even, you know, going from there, he went to college, enrolled in a school, and then ended up getting a BA, you know what I mean? Like... And when he was full blown blind at that point too, that's awesome. So, yeah, making something. He's a, he was a major success story. Major success story. Totally. And when he talked about him in ring, he had like those big glasses that you see, like you know, a lot of old timers would wear at that point when their eyesight's were shit. And but he had a big smile. He talked, you know, looked very well dressed, had a suit on, and he was just talking about his career and what he was doing and how happy he was with life and his love of jazz music. So. I know you could dig that shit. I certainly can. <laughs> but I thought that was, that's, you know, definitely an obscure one, but it should be brought up because twice you try talking shit and twice it ends up in the first round splat for you. <laughs> it is an obscure one. Like I said, nobody's going to be talking about, nobody's going to be talking about him on a, on any podcast whatsoever. They probably will now or they'll be <laughs> going on to some YouTube channel talking about. <laughs> I mean, he's a fascinating character. You know, he's a very, very fascinating character that a lot of people, um, if you're not aware from it, it's, you really should look him up, man. Really, really fascinating guy. Fighter, career, everything. Big fan. So I, I figured, uh, I mean, I, I got to kind of, I don't think I need to tiptoe around this, but I do need to at least uh, talk about it with respect for a couple of reasons. Um, but if you're talking about trash talk that's gone wrong, I mean, this is really obviously taking it to the extreme, but it does fall under the umbrella nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the early 1960s, we've, we've talked about the International Boxing Club in New York before. Uh, you know, Don Jordan was a fighter whose career was really under the microscope during this period when the International Boxing Club in New York was being targeted by the feds. Uh, he wound up capturing the welterweight title. The guy who won the welterweight title from him was Benny Kid Perret. Oof, yeah. Yeah, so already you know where I'm going. But um, nonetheless, a lot of people forget that because what happened later dominates their memory 
of the welterweight division during this period, Benny Perrette was the welterweight champion first. He captured the title from Don Jordan. And then he was champion for, I don't know, maybe a year, year and a half-ish. And then Emil Griffith defeated him to, to win the welterweight title uh, about a year, year and a half into his reign. And then in their rematch, Benny Perrette defeated Emil Griffith and regained the title. Um, but, you know, the uh, at the weigh-in, as the story goes, and this was, it has been substantiated, so it's not like it's some rumor. It is a legit story, and it was reported on at the time. You can um, see photos that look like it's, in, you know, that looks like something's happening there. Well, and oddly, too, Griffith, at least at the time, looks like he's smiling. But it almost seems like, I, I, I mean, and based on that, it could just be that he was smiling because he didn't know what the fuck to say or do. You know, like he didn't know what to, how to react at that point. But during their weigh-in, um, Benny Perrette pointed to Emil Griffith and called him maricon, which in Spanish is the F slur for somebody who's gay. And again, like I said, Emil Griffith in the in the photos looks like he's smiling. So maybe he just doesn't know how to react or he's uncomfortable. And he's like, you know, I should just fucking sock this guy here. But, you know, I don't want to lose the payday or whatever the case may be. Yeah, I know he and, definitely was thinking about it. But I mean, and then also to be in his position, uh, you have to remember a couple of things. Emil Griffith, first of all, at the time, I don't know that he ever could ever considered himself gay. But I do know that he, at various points, said that he was bisexual. Either way, uh, hooking up with a man, uh, having any sort of relationship with a man, being a man, that was beyond friendship, at the time in a number of states, was not only illegal, but it was like, if somebody perpetuated violence against you, nothing was going to happen to them, type of shit. So it was like... Benny Perrette was actually in a way targeting him for violence and targeting him for backlash. Um, and it was not something that was out in the open. I don't think like it was something that was kind of hush hush that people suspected, you know, quote unquote knew about, but anyway, so to be a guy in Emil Griffith's position to be called something like that. And then on top of that, be the champion and go on to lose your championship. To that guy who just fucking did that you know like that i'm oh. sure it would be like a nadir a really low point in your life that would be awful and then they, they had a rubber match in 1962 in april of 1962 and this marked it was extremely significant for a number of reasons and one of them being that this was a fight that was live on television uh you know it, it was for the welterweight championship it had a famous referee who had been refereeing for a long time they introduced fighters before the fight etc but, but again before the fight during the weigh-in or around there at some point again benny perrette used the exact same slur against emil griffith and this time emil griffith was like i'm going to kill you yeah. Like I'm, I'm not, I don't know who the fuck you've been talking to, but I'm, I'm going to like, I'm going to take your life. I'm going to fuck you up. I'm gonna beat you to death. And I don't remember the exact words he used, but I think he said something like, I'm going to beat this guy to death or I'm going to beat the life out of him or something like that. 
And so, needless to say, they go on to fight at Madison Square Garden, and it's a big spectacle, and 12 rounds in, after, for a couple of rounds, it was a back-and-forth fight, actually, for about half of it or so, and then for maybe the last third of the fight, Emil Griffith starts putting the heat on Benny Perrette, and then in the last round, just absolutely starts laying the bricks on him. Um, And Emil Griffith was not a big puncher, is the thing. And we've talked about this before, boxing fans in general, this is just something that's kind of known. A lot of the times when fighters get knocked clean out by one punch, that's like generally not where the danger is. Generally where the danger is, is when a fighter absorbs punch after punch after punch after punch. And that's exactly what happened here. Emil Griffith was not a big puncher and he just fucking put put some work in on Benny Perrette. But then unfortunately, Benny, Benny Perrette got propped up in the corner in the last sequence and Emil Griffith just unleashes who knows how many, maybe 25, 30 punches that are totally unanswered defenseless 100%. And Ruby Goldstein is almost like beside himself, trying to get in, wants to stop it. Can't quite stop it. Uh, ooh, eh, uh. And then he just Brett, jumped in the middle of it. Somehow he could have done yeah, something that he just kind of looked there aimlessly. And it was awful. Perrette slumps to the canvas and never regains, never fully regains consciousness after that, dies a couple days later. And I think, again, apart from the fact that a fighter lost their life, which is awful, the fact that uh, a husband and a father lost his life, which is awful, obviously, apart from that, it was live. It was on TV. This was the early 60s. So TV was still somewhat new, you know, in, in terms of being. Uh, available, readily available to the public, et cetera, et cetera. So for this was huge. This was a really traumatic thing. And so uh, it, this discussion about what Perrette said and what it led to, I think probably did not happen until many years later, at least not an honest discussion. You know what I mean? Absolutely. But nonetheless, for the last couple of decades, it's definitely been part because of what happened in the ring was the one that was the main concern. Everyone was just talked about, oh my God, Griffith right. killed him, Griffith killed him. They weren't blaming him saying that he's a murderer or nothing, but they were just like talking about what exactly happened. That like, yeah, it, it overshadowed what led to like this all, you know, all the events happening. But that documentary that came out in the um, ring of fire thousands. Yes. You know, that was really that that breaks down for you completely right there, you know. Very moving documentary. Very, too. very moving. Especially when um, Griffith meets with uh, Perrette's kid at the end. And, um, you know, and they finally embrace and all that. And it's really, really touching stuff. Seeing yeah. Perrette's wife, too, is really sad because you see the way she, like, she can't. She's trying her best, but even all those years later, and it was a lot of years later, she's still, like, totally, like, really a shipwreck from it. She couldn't even meet Griffith, you know. Yeah, she... uh uh, so Perrette, Cuban immigrant, uh, his wife, I believe she was also a Cuban immigrant, but if she was not a Cuban immigrant, she was Cuban American. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, um, in any case, sorry, I wasn't laughing at what I was saying, but I was laughing at you reacting to whatever the fuck's going on in your apartment. Um, I think some people was moved in upstairs and they've been dropping the most random shit, like so loud. Are we going to have to put them up? But, um, <laughs> But yeah, in any case, uh, it was it was really sad at the time too. Um, you know, his his wife, his widow, and her reaction to it at the time was pretty rough. Uh, he had a young son, the son that is in the documentary. 
So, I mean, again, I think a, a lot of this episode's lighthearted, fun, hilarious, this part, not as much, but it's like, I feel like you can't talk about this and not, you know, like not bring this fight. I mean, it's history, you know, it's, it's boxing history. Everybody that was involved in that fight, I'm not sure if anyone's even really still around from that era. Everyone that was involved in it was doc, was on that documentary, but the ensuing years, a lot of them have passed on, but um. It was, it, it's, it's just heavy stuff, man. It's just heavy stuff. Griffith, to his credit, was able to come back from that and continue his career and still have a very, very productive career. Um, Hall of Fame career, you know. Probably um, even so underrated. A, a true all-time. Oh, yeah. Career. Totally, totally, man. Was, because the Killer Rings thing, not to say that he was like a rampaging like Tyson guy, but like the, the style that he incorporated before, like most guys, after they, you know, unfortunately um kill somebody in the ring um their styles usually get altered a little bit you know what i mean they're never quite really the same i mean there's exceptions sometimes guys can just continue on somehow but like for the most part yeah, um, or, or if it's not like a full-on style change or even a yeah, tweet, yeah it's yeah. just that their mentality is different which and that's what which it is manifests mentality, mentality was different at that point yeah. you know? but he was always he was you know how Griffith was always described as a guy that like he never did anything great but he just every did everything so good he was exactly. just you know what I mean he was just you couldn't beat him really it was just tough to beat him you know what I mean he always just had that reserve he was in incredible shape all the time punch first so, and last type punch of guy. first and let yeah you know what I mean just be in the pocket always gave you always struggled um and yeah the Hall of Fame caliber guys he fought all the way until the end of his career because he fought a long time. A lot of people don't realize, man, he fought all the way up until 1975. He was going in there with guys like Vito Winterfermo and Alan Minter, who are a complete a hat maker. He was yeah. a hat maker. <laughs> and that and how he got discovered too. He was in yeah. he was in he was in the, in the factory making hats and, or working in the factory. And he asked Howie Albert, who ran a boxing gym, but also that factory, um, hey, can I take off my shirt? Because he was hot. Took it off. Dude was absolutely ripped yeah, he's just an absolute physical specimen just specimen. yeah and how you know and howie albert looked him up and down and was like my god i'm gonna make this dude into a world champion like now and that's when he wanted to tell him about boxing and griffith that originally was like i don't want to fight what are you talking about you know i don't want to be a boxer <laughs> well they a, a lot of uh a lot of writers used to describe emile griffith's voice as sing song yes that is totally yeah because that's you know I don't, I don't know how I didn't notice that my microphone was slowly traveling down <laughs> over the course of the show, but, um, but that's, he had a very, uh, almost like Chris Eubank. Yes. Like a, a very similar kind of voice, you know, just. Except more happy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like Griffith always seemed like he was in a good mood. Effeminate you know is I mean? like too low of a fruit. I don't want to pick that fruit, nah, but, definitely it, not. but that's, just... but that's kind of how it sounded like Chris Eubank. But um, no, like, I've, it's been described in many books. Griffith had a very like sing song type, like, you know, the way he talked, the way he did. And he was, man, his whole attitude, he was very just happy. And if you saw him at the Hall of Fame before, his, before um, you know, unfortunately, he started, his mind started to go. Um, dude, he, he loved everybody, man. All he wanted to do was be there, take photos with people, smile, hug little kids and, ju and just, you know, enjoy the fans. Like he just enjoyed that shit. The first piece of memorabilia i ever got was assigned eight by ten from a meal yeah yeah, yeah. I, I, I have was, it around somewhere but um i remember the first time i met him when i was a kid and he was all happy to meet me and gave me a big hug and all that and i talked to him about a few of his fights because that's all i wanted to do back then when you take a photo i saw you i've read about you fighting blah 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 
And he was like, really? Where'd you read about that? You're just a kid. Well, you know, I read about this in books. He's like, oh, look at you. And he gives me a little noogie. Sir, past me you my must not know who Araspina is. <laughs> and that was, you know, that's, I miss him, man. Griffith was one of those guys that you would look forward to seeing every year at the Hall of Fame. But um, that was one. On a, on a more lighter note, we'll bring, um, we'll move it on to uh, 1997 here. Excuse me. With, um, you remember the on the undercard of Hamed, Nassim Hamed, Kevin Kelly, Junior Jones, on his birthday, fought Kennedy McKinney. And before oh, the no. fight, before the fight, was telling everybody and everyone and all the magazines and everything how badly he was going to whoop McKinney because he thought absolutely nothing of him. Did not like him, thought he was a bum. Man, and I no. remember in a mag... Go ahead. No, please, go ahead. Sorry, I'm just... I'm getting excited and I'm like, hey, yeah. hey, hey. And like in this magazine, I remember there was a ring magazine after Jones, after Junior Jones beat Marco Antonio Barrera. So here's the thing with Junior Jones. All right. He first came on the scene in the early 90s. Um, everybody was was really excited about him because, you know, lower weight fighters that are American are kind of hard to come by. And Jones had the lankiness of like Tommy Burns. Yeah, totally. <laughs> And they, yeah, they had those promotional photos of him too, those cool ass ones where he was like in the boxing gloves and he made the face and he was like near all the potions and stuff like that. But yeah. um, he was knocking the hell out of everybody. So when he became Bantamweight champion originally, um, people were looking for him not only as a future pound for pound great, but potentially even a Hall of Famer. Um, he dominated a very good champion, Jorge Elias Julio, and sky was the limit for him. He loses the belt in a major upset to John Michael Johnson soon after that. And then soon after that fight, in a big, even bigger upset, gets knocked out by a dangerous journeyman by the name of um, Daryl Pinkney. Um, at this point, everybody's completely written Jones off. Like it's, you know, flash in the pan. And Jones, to his credit, you know, rebuilds himself with a number of, with a number of wins off television, you know, builds him enough to the point where he's um, looked upon as a respectable opponent for a rampage in Marco Antonio Barrera. So... When Brera at this point has been featured on HBO prominently, he's, you know, hotter than he ever. He's a big staple at the forum at this point. Totally, yeah. And that was even before he got it, before Boxing After Dark and HBO. Once he beat Kennedy McKinney, man, sky was the limit. Everybody wanted a piece of that dude. So it was supposed to be a formality. Junior Jones was going to go in there, and most people thought that Brera would steamroll. And to his credit, man, Jones, you know, blasted him out of there. Incredible performance, you know what I mean? They're very memorable at the end when he hits Brera with that final right hand. Brera drops, and then when Jones is celebrating, Brera's pissed off cornerman comes in and throws one of his wa- uh, wet sponge at him. <laughs> he's they, were the, they were like the worst. They were some of the worst sports, bro. They really were, dude. All the time, they were always babies about things. I love Seriously. Brera. But they, yeah, they, you know. And anytime they ever had to do shit, it was like they were like sobbing and doing it. It was like, like how dare dude. someone actually beat you in a fight? I didn't know that was illegal. I'm like, what the hell, you know? So anyways, Jones now, everybody, all of a sudden, when everybody written Jones off, now he's back on the pound for pound list again, just off of that one win. Granted, it was a very, very impressive win, but everybody was like, man, Junior Jones is back. Blah, 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 blah. So he beats Pereira in a rematch. Yeah, that was a crazy Ooh. upset. Crazy upset. It really was. That was an amazing upset. Then he beats Pereira in the rematch, and which proves that the first one wasn't a fluke. And he does it by decision, kind of you know, solidifying that he's looking good and whatever. So Jones now was even featured in a Ring Magazine article because everybody saw talking about him. He had a thing where he had his checklist. There's a photo of him with like, it has all the names. It was Hamed, 
Kevin Kelly, um, McKinney, this one, that one, that one, right? Biani Bungu, a couple other guys. And um, he's given little descriptions of each guy. You know, I want Hamed, most money, blah, blah, blah. You know, I think I could, I'll beat the Prince this way. Kevin Kelly, he's my best friend. After we fight, I'll take him out to dinner. I love Kevin, all this other stuff. I don't really want to fight him. Kennedy McKinney. Oh, you know, Kennedy McKinney's a bum. He's a scrub. He's going to do this. I'm going to whoop his ass if we ever fought. He's slow. He's ponderous. I'll knock him out in three rounds. He's easy. I'm going to do this and that to him. McKinney doesn't like him either. They're going to the press conference now. And like I said, man, this is big. And Kennedy's seen better, better days too, because he's he's had a ton of problems in his career. Totally. Outside the ring problems. And he had been around for a long time. McKinney was an 88 Olympian. But like you said, bro, he had a cocaine habit, had a lot of other issues going on. He was old. And yeah, he came off of that. The Welcome Nasida fight was what, like 92 or something? Yes. And those were fights. Those were wars. Both of them. Yeah. Matter. First one, he was losing. First one, he was losing. It was on his way to being stopped until he landed oh, that bro. Hail Mary right hand. Fucking brutal out of nowhere. Just fucking bomb. Incredible right hand. He got dropped moments before that Welcome Nito came in to finish him off and just <laughs> got flagged. Um beat him in a rematch but yeah man he had been through the ringer in a lot of tough fights the Barrera fight would have taken years off of anyone's career and um yeah he was more or less being brought in as cannon fodder like I said this is Junior Jones birthday on a major massive card at Madison Square Garden in his hometown we're in his backyard this is all for a coronation he's not supposed to lose this fight this is all built for him to score a massive victory and propel him to a to a high med fight and you know, talk about taking the L on the biggest stage. <laughs> Madison Square Garden, yeah. New York. I'm going <laughs> to knock your spark out. Yeah, dude, fucking oh, like, so wild to me. What I was going to say when you started talking about this was just like, obviously, you take Kenny McKinney, Junior Jones, Eric Morales, Marco Antonio Barrera. Like these guys, it's it's not four kings status, but we're talking when I was talking about earlier the mixing and matching about the you know the whole A beats B beats C equals A equals C, you know that shit does not work in boxing, which we already know because style makes styles make fights, and this is one of those situations. Like the the junior featherweights and featherweights from right around this era are like a perfect example of exactly that. We're fucking you know uh, Junior Jones proves that i guess he just he just had barco and tony barrera's number like he just i don't know there's no better explanation barrera just could not get anything going against junior jones and junior jones had that the he just saw the counters i don't know he just saw the counters and executed and so barrera couldn't get by jones but then you know barrera is able to beat mckinney and i know i'm not going in order but then you know mckinney's able to beat jones uh, you know, a lot of people felt Marco Antonio Barrera beat Eric Morales, but Eric Morales beat the piss out of Junior Jones. So it's like, dude, there's no, there's no logic here. There's no logic, but that's the whole thing, you know? It's true, man. And the fight in itself was really exciting. So put it this way. If like, we didn't get that crazy ass fight between Hamed and um, Kevin Kelly in the main event where they traded multiple knockdowns, everyone would have been satisfied by this fight. That's why I was mentioning, that's why it's a fight that's featured in League Rose's uh, Closet Classics, because it's a really, really good fight. And Junior Jones trying to prove his point that he's the man now of this division, that he thinks of Kennedy McKinney being absolutely nothing to him, goes out there and just absolutely shoots his load on him in the first few rounds. Bro, I mean, I'm talking like, puts in I'm t- like 10 to 12 rounds worth of work 
in like the first two rounds, which is absurd to think about when you really think about it. But like, because it wasn't that he was just, he comes out there and just boom, 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 boom. Like he is whipping power shots out the wires, like going crazy trying to knock McKinney out because he thinks McKinney's nothing. And McKinney uh, has always been a slow starter, notoriously, is just taking him. He's not really offering a ton back. He's, you know, throwing back a little bit, trying to like keep his composure. But Jones is really trying to take him out. And, you know, you're wondering to yourself, how is he going to be able to keep up this pace? Because he was really pushing a crazy pace at that point. So first two rounds, he's boom, 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 boom. McKinney's taking it, offering a right hand back here and there. But Jones is really just kind of whooping on him. Finally, it looks like he's going to break through. And McKinney finally turns around after a, a series of body shots, I think, in round three and goes down, right? Turns over, just crumples up, and finally goes down. I mean, Jones has been really lighting his ass up. But if you notice this, too, Jones is throwing so hard and so many punches. Now you see him. <sighs> yup. Mouth is wide open. Mouth is wide open. His eyes are all, like, bugging out. Dude is just, like, he is gasping. Absolutely gasping for air. You know what I mean? You know, like, like that skit when Richard Pryor talked about when he boxed and he said, you lose all your air. And the opponent's like, oh, you want, you know, when air just leave your body, air just say, fuck it. <laughs> kind of like the same shit, man. Like Pryor had some all-time great boxing fucking stand-up. Yeah, version. yeah. <laughs> but, um, and, and Kenny McKinney said in a quote after that fight, he was like, he noticed because he was like, oh, I could take his punch. He's like, I'm taking it, taking it. And then. And then he noticed that he saw his mouth open. He was like, man, his ass is out of shape. He was like, I knew it. He was like, now I'm going to get on him. Because <laughs> that round four, Junior Jones had nothing, absolutely nothing. He came out like a spent force, no legs, no nothing. Got cut, by the way, too, from McKinney uh, right hands. Now he was dealing with a cut under his eye. And he's like breathing heavily. And McKinney, who always had a monster right hand, just started. And that was that. Going to work. And scored a massive upset. Well, and, and that was a that was massive thing, upset. Dude, like you, you, Kennedy McKinney was the kind of fighter where like he was dangerous because he could punch, yeah. and he was dangerous because like and he was experienced too. Like he wasn't like he wasn't some scrub, but he was. He could be slow. He could be ponderous. He could be. He could be the kind of fighter that just kind of like covers up a little too much and goes to the ropes and shit like that. You know, gives goes inactive for a round. He totally. he could be beat. He was beatable. It was just that, like, don't motivate him. Don't piss him off. Don't give him a reason to fight hard. Because, like, don't give him a reason to make sure he's not going to get knocked out. And don't fight like an idiot. Like, that was one of the most boneheaded strategies you can find to go out there and think you're going to, like, blitz him in a round or two. If McKinney's a slow starter, one thing you're not going to do is knock him out in a round. All right. The only person that was able to pull that off was Leo Cito Espinosa, who was a giant compared to those guys. And McKinney wasn't motivated for that fight. He even said so as much afterwards. He was going through a bunch of issues and he wasn't even, you know, he wasn't even thinking twice about it. This one, he was highly motivated for, highly, because he knew what was going to come. He knew that if he won this fight, there was a chance he would definitely be in the Hamed sweepstakes. And he was supposed to be because after that fight, um, it was scheduled to be, man. I've told you, I've read about this before. I, I don't remember what, what, what thing it was, but. It was in an article where they had a schedule where it was supposed to be Kenny McKinney was going to fight Hamed and Arturo Gotti was going to fight Kevin Kelly on the undercard. And, <laughs> and what, fucking, what fucking body part was Arturo going to cut off to make that weight? 
I have no idea. I think Gotti might have still been junior lightweight at that point, and Kelly and Kelly might have moved up to fight him. I have no idea, but like that just yeah, that would have been, been absolutely bad for Kelly. Yeah, bad, 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 bad for our boy, the Flushing Flash. And I love Kevin Kelly, man. I'm gonna be like, oh, Jesus Christ, how bad that would have been. Yeah, it would have been. And they kind of, and you know what? The, the I can, I almost think the logical thinking behind that was is that like, hey, Gotti's an action guy, Kelly's an action guy. I bet you they'll make a really fun fight. Yeah, I mean, I I, I get where they could be coming from with that but yes but it's just two different sizes man no, two different yeah, sizes no. but regardless and, obviously and, that whole card never came off well, and Gotti got in with Deloya not that long after that so I mean that was you know Gotti had he was oof yeah if he would have made 130 pounds it would have been like a gamash situation dude with a fucking you know he's like cutting off a limb to make that weight but then coming in there a monster totally totally because at that point he was I think he was, yeah, well, Gotti was still fighting around junior lightweight at that point, around 97, 98, because he had the man Freddie fighting a couple others, so That's he was true, still lingering man. there. But, yeah, regardless, because of the weight he gains after the weigh-in and stuff like that, it just he, he would have been completely yeah, blown that up. Been, but, that would have been a rough shit, dude. But, yeah, man, uh, Junior Jones' bubble was completely popped after that because once he lost that fight, again, he never he never ascended those ranks again. Yeah, he, he lost that really fight. gained that form. Tried the same, uh, tried the same strategy against Eric Morales that he did against Kennedy McKinney, thinking if it didn't work that time, maybe it'll work. Because if you watch that fight with Morales, he came out guns a blazing again, right in Tijuana. First couple of rounds, man, he, you know, Morales is fighting right back with him, but Morales is totally like kind of taking it back by how much Junior Jones is throwing. And then by round four, same thing, had nothing left in his tank, completely gassed out, and Morales just finished him. Um, you know, maybe he didn't train that well, but just got to the weight and just figured, fuck, I just better, I better try to knock him out or something, you know? I have no idea, man, but that, that was it. He, you know, his career petered off after that. He had one fight against a, a, a fun fight, actually, against, um, the, who was that? Paul, Paul something, Paul Engel. Yeah, Paul Engel. And that was about it, but yeah. All right. So I got a, I got a pretty good one. Um, probably shouldn't do too many more, but nonetheless, I got yeah, a pretty I think good we got one more for the night for me. Uh, so back in 2011, so I'm going a little more recent. Mm-hmm. Um, back in 2011, a little haymaker named David Hay. Yes. <laughs> oh, def- yes. Yeah. Yeah. This, oh, this is some pretty good trash talk gone wrong. I mean, because just because of the layers to it so the trash talks the t-shirts yeah i'm not going to go through the whole klitschko rain we know what it is at this point especially because they've been in the news recently you know we've kind of rehashed their career um but vladimir klitschko on this second reign of his uh against uh so vladimir klitschko is in in the midst of his second reign david hay after just obliterating uh homeboy what's his name and at cruiserweight um oh um Enzo oh my gosh. he's the italian dude Enzo, he's Enzo, British. Enzo, 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 yeah enzo macronelli sorry i couldn't wow anyway he obliterates enzo and he's at right around this point starting to talk about going up to heavyweight because i remember actually <laughs> I don't know why he did this, but David Hay or somebody closely associated with him joined the Max Boxing message board. 
and went on there and was interacting with fans. And at first we were like, that's not him. But sure enough, like as an admin, I went and I checked his IP and I was like, okay, well, it's from the UK. So at least that's, you know, that's one thing. But then one of the other admins got in contact with the account and verified it, that that was him. Point is, the reason why I bring that up is because I remember at the time he was talking about, oh, when I was, uh, you know, when I was uh, in high school, you know, like I weighed this. So heavyweight's really not even that out of my wheelhouse. I'm cutting weight to make cruiserweight. And he was like, he was even posting photos of himself when he was like in high school and shit on the boards. We were like, whoa, okay, this guy's legit. What the fuck? This is weird. But he really was. And uh, point is, he was saying, oh, heavyweight's not a cut for me. You know, I'm just not cutting weight. If I'm making heavyweight, I'm going to move up to heavyweight. I'm going to beat the Klitschko's. And I remember back then, everybody was like, shut up, dude. Klitschko's, get out of here. You're nuts. Over the next few years, or maybe two years or so, roughly, he, I remember he had gotten uh, T-shirts made. The Klitschko's had some media day for some totally other shit, dude some totally separate shit and the Klitschko's had some media day and David Hay crashed the media day carrying fucking t-shirts that had him holding the decapitated heads of the Klitschko's or maybe he had him holding them down. But point was, it was like, you know, I mean, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty fucking out there trash talk. You know, that's, I'm going to kill you, shit, man. It's very gnarly, bro. <laughs> I'm going to kill you is definitely jumping up a few notches in the trash talk. You know, like that's that's definitely escalating shit. But it, but he like was showing up places, not quite Shannon Briggs status, not 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 quite where when you eat, I eat champ. But it was he was showing oh, up places favorite. and like fucking Rasnum and shit like that. And then finally, I remember they put the fight together and it was a big deal because Hay was, uh, you know, he had defeated uh nikolai valuev uh albeit somewhat narrowly and in a really not fun fight because he had to run away from a guy who was like literally a foot taller than him and outweighed him by like 120 pounds or some shit and in any case uh you know he had he had scored these wins at heavyweight which in my opinion were not that great but nonetheless qualified him to actually get in then with vladimir klitschko in what i think was a unification at the time and in any case, it was bad, dude. Vladimir Klitschko was just like, he was just too much. Anytime he landed a punch, Hay was like, fuck that, I'm out of here. And just did oh, not really engage. Fight, man. It was one of the most disappointing big fights bad. you'd ever see. Especially with all the crap that he was talking. Like, like you said, bro, it wasn't just like running your mouth a little bit and saying, yeah, I'm going to win the fight. I'm going to knock him out. He came with a t-shirt with their decapitated heads. Like you said, he brought that shit to another level and just other stuff he was doing. It was bad, like extremely, extremely bad. And with all that being said, and first he was supposed to fight, um, flight. He was supposed to fight, uh, Vlad. Then he was supposed to fight Vitaly. Then he was going to fight Vlad, like going back yeah, and forth. It was a whole back and forth with a bunch of shit. It was so ridiculous, man. And the, the press conferences trying to pick fights and. The, I, I was expecting a full-on thing, and I thought he could win, man, because of, you know, him being quicker. A lot and all of people did. Stuff. Yeah, I was, and I was kind of hoping so, too, because I'm like, he might bring some excitement in the division or do something. Nah, and You're he, not alone. You, I mean, I didn't, I picked Vladimir Klitschko, and I, I was like, I don't really like David Hay, but you're yeah. not alone in that, because a lot of people... A lot and of I wasn't people, even a hey fan. I was just like, you know... Or yeah, I just wanted to see him get fucking murked, or whatever it was, yeah, you know? but... Nah, he he put up, he dropped an absolute egg, and then he blamed his his toe of all things, man. 
his stupid toe. He was like, oh, I had a bad toe. And then he had the nerve to show it after the fight. Like, want people see that nangly, nasty-ass Literally thing? No. hopped up on the press conference table and took off his shoe and was like, look why at my he toe. Couldn't do it. It Motherfuckers, worse, there were fools, like photographers that were like, click, 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 click. Okay, that, now pose You it know here. what? That whole scene right there summed up the Kalichko era of the heavyweight division. It was like, my period. God. <laughs> How that was awful. such a bad time. That was a definite low for heavyweight boxing. That was well, and the and the act that I think the Glitchko got banned from HBO for a little while after that, didn't they? Yes. Well, at the very least, they the the HBO formal official line was we're not in the heavyweight business anymore. Was I think what yeah, they said? Because after that, I remember the Klitschko's got banished to Epics. Remember them? My God, dude. <laughs> There was, yeah, there was this, this like over the course of like five years, there were like several little things that just popped up and went nowhere. Like, you remember Wealth TV? Wealth oh, TV. God, yes. Wow, like they had like a couple of fucking bangers on there and then just disappeared. Fucking. I do, anyway. do remember Wealth TV. Yeah, yeah. Epics, I used to be at the studio because we would do the, we would do the comp box at the studio with the announcers. So you saw, our, I don't know who would be announcing that day, but whoever was in there, we were, yeah, we were working in there. The, the the last little wrinkle too on that was that afterward Vladimir Klitschko went on to I know he went on to Twitter I don't know if it was other social media as well but he went on to Twitter and dropped a video that was just him going like this with photos from the fight and making yeah. faces so like he's like he has photos of Hay in the t-shirts mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. like Hay taunting him and shit like that and he's just going you know, like rolling his eyes. And then he fucking goes like this. And there's a photo where he's pushing David Hay down. And the way that he's pushing him down during the fight looks like he's performing fellatio. (laughs) And so Vladimir pushes this photo aside and just like, is like, Ooh, and then goes to the last one, which is David Hay's toe. And he's just like, dude, it was, I have to admit, for like saying absolutely nothing at all in like a 30 second video it was yeah. it was good it was real good that's awesome but the toe bro and on top of that dan raphael raphael would not stop hashtagging the goddamn toe for like four years bro he probably Man, still the fight does. freak error was really tough bro fight freak error probably was... still does <laughs> fight freak error was a tough one remember all the chats yes i i was never really into them but i do remember them Oh, yeah, I read a couple of them. I don't think I was ever enjoying them shits. But um, uh, last one I've got to bring up, and of course, it's the one that we, you and I joke about all the time. And it's a very memorable one because it's one that many people always know about and can laugh about, um, I guess, unless you're a fan of them. Um, Fernando, I Vargas, I think I... <laughs> Fernando Vargas, Oscar De La Hoya. <laughs> got to finish on the high note, man. <laughs> I mean... It... Between Oscar and Vargas, they both are on like both sides of the fucking equation here. Cause like Oscar dealt out some brutal retribution to both Fernando Vargas and Ricardo Mayorga for their shit talk. And then, you know, fucking uh, Fernando Vargas got his ass kicked for talking shit to Oscar and Ricardo Mayorga. I mean, like, dude, you know, like top rank, um, because they're the only ones that could show their footage apparently. Uh, put out a <laughs> put out a tweet of um of the press conference. Part of the press conference with Vargas 
was talking shit about Oscar. And he was like, he was like using a very like high pitched woman voice type deal to try to describe how Oscar would talk. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I mean, I it's, it's obvious. I mean, it's obvious. The insinuation is that he's like gay or totally. Something. That's what you he know? was like, doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he was thing. he was totally insinuating that and trying to heckle him and and saying that and he was like, oh, you know, like doing that. And, oh, I don't want to be touched. I don't want to be touched. Like just basically, you know, trying to. He was running his mouth. But the whole story, as you know, everybody kind of knows. Like, <laughs> so to to run it back, really obvious. Um, Vargas claimed when he was a kid that they were running in somewhere, right? A big bear or somewhere yeah, around. They said that they were both training big in Big Bear or something. Okay. And Vargas tripped and fell into a ditch or something. <laughs> and he said Oscar ran by and laughed at him instead of helping him. And that everybody else kind of did the same. And Vargas, for whatever reason, <laughs> took that as a slight. Was zeroed in on Oscar. Yeah. And for the rest of his, you know, from that time period all the way up until he turned pro. And afterwards, Fargus's main focus was fighting Oscar because Oscar decided not to help Fargus in the ditch. I'm sorry, I probably would have done the same thing. If we're out doing road work and I see you in a falling in a ditch, I'm probably gonna chuckle with my friends while I run by. What the hell's wrong with you, man? Well, the, well, and it's it's just so like childish and absurd, dude. You know, and honestly, like not to get too like philosophical about this shit or you know psychology or whatever, but um, I do kind of think there's almost like an element of like sadness to it because mm-hmm. you almost have to know a little bit more about like Southern California and specifically Los Angeles, like East, East LA and the dynamics and whatnot and the late eighties and early nineties and how popular Oscar de la Hoya was, but also yes. how, uh, just how polarizing the idea of an Oscar de la Hoya could be because he was Mexican-American. He did not speak in, or, uh, Spanish very well. You know, uh, he mm. was very much kind of like looped into the American dream part yeah. of it. And, uh, you know, he's all about representing the United States. And this is not me. I'm not talking shit. Like, you're raised how you're raised. He can't help how you. That's just how he was raised. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. But... And the element of sadness to this is because I think that there were a lot of times where kids like Fernando Vargas probably did look up to an Oscar de la Hoya when he started getting popular in 92, you know, after the Olympics, he was, I, I would imagine, and perhaps not, I don't know. I'm not saying, and maybe Vargas would take this as a massive insult, me insinuating that, but there probably was a moment where he was like, I wish I could be like that guy. Or a lot of people in the Oxnard, you know, around there were like, I wish I could do that type of shit. And so if that really were the case, if that really did happen to Fernando Vargas, and if he really did at the time look up to Oscar de la Hoya, and the dude kind of like, you know, dicked him out like that, yeah, I'd probably be mad too. You know, I'd probably be kind of bitter about it to the point where I would literally go out of my way to talk shit about him in every single interview like I ever fucking did from that point forward. no. Because literally going back in the LA Times, like years before the the De La Hoya fight, this fool was talking shit on De La Hoya for fucking ever, bro. Oh, yeah. Like oh, yeah. Fernando Vargas hated that guy. Like he was always like, oh, not like De La Hoya. No, I mean, not like this fucking guy. Like he would, you know, uh, he was um, like when he fought Marquez, when he fought Raul Marquez. 
you know, he's yeah. like giving props to Marquez, but you know, he's like, not like this fucking guy over here when, you know, anyway, I'm not going to get into the whole fucking social it, dynamic of it, but you got to think of it too, that like, so Vargas feels he's been slighted by Oscar early on. Right now. Also too, think about this. Oscar came, Oscar's a little bit older than him. Oscar came. Exactly. Came up yeah. Yeah. He has to deal with being an Oscar shadow, more or less, even though they're not like Fernando Vargas, the next Oscar de la Hoya. And if you're Fernando Vargas, you're probably like, shut the fuck up and stop asking me that. Especially when it all the rumblings really started before the Olympics. That's when Vargas first like started making noise, started like getting, you know, a lot of ink when um, when they found out he was making the 96 team because everybody, you know, at that point, too. It was hard to watch boxing. You know, there, were, there was already rumblings and gripes about you couldn't really watch a lot of the fights on television because they weren't, feeling, you know, televising a lot of them. But that didn't mean these te- the team wasn't getting a lot of ink. They were featured prominently, you know, beforehand previewed in Ring Magazine. They were featured in KO. They were talked about in various things, like, you know, talking about... And Vargas was mentioned more than some of the others. Vargas, Mayweather, Antonio Tarver. Those were like the three guys in David Reed to a degree, maybe. But like those were the three core guys that a lot of people were saying expected medals from, especially gold medals potentially. So yeah, Vargas was getting a lot of ink, especially too, because like he, like I said, he kind of, you know, he's a Mexican American dude, good looking guy back then, you know, boyish look. He kind of gave off the Oscar vibes. Same thing, you know, East California, Southern California, whatever. Like they you know he um he gives off the same vibes out there it's easy to make those comparisons of course people are going to make those comparisons and especially with oscar being so popular where he was this is peak oscar de la hoya fandom right now we're talking in the mid 90s the comparison everyone's gonna be like oh the new oscar new oscar vargas is seething from this now all right like he not only is it can he not stand this but now he feels like he's in his shadow this is his time he wants to be his own person uh, realistically he is nothing like oxar oscar he is complete opposite of him in personality and everything else but the public doesn't really want to know that they just want to compare him because they're both baby face looking good guys you know what i mean right yeah well and the and to the white public it's just two mexicans yes. that's all they say. exactly exactly out you know to the to the white public they're just kind of like well they both look like they're both good looking guys yada 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 easy oh, everybody's name's ethnic them. yeah, yeah. They were probably looking to see if Vargas had a mom that was going to die too, so they can tie that in as well. Like, you know, I'm just (laughs) ouch. It's true, but like with some of the, (laughs) well, it's not wrong, but ouch. But like, you know, it's, it's crazy to think with these things, but like that, you know, Vargas was seething, man. He didn't want to deal with that shit. And so he's brewing all that stuff. Um, The Olympics happen. He doesn't, it doesn't turn out as well as he had hoped. And he turns pro. He still turns pro with major fanfare. You know what I mean? Like he's still looked upon, as a major player coming out of the Olympics, more so again, he's still one of the top three guys. Well, Reed now as well, but like, well, Reed uh, replaced Tarver, I would say. So now you had Reed, Mayweather, and Vargas as the three guys people were like the most excited to see turn pro. And um, Vargas turns pro. Lots of fanfares featured prominently on television, featured prominently on HBO right away. Tuesday night fights, other things around then gets slotted into a title fight with Yori Boy Compass and what, like his 14th, 15th pro fight or something. And he was still young, man. He became the youngest junior middleweight champion ever at that point. He was like 20 years old or something. Like, you know, fast track, absolutely fast track to a world title belt. And at that point now, everybody knew his feelings toward Oscar. Like, do not compare me to Oscar. Don't want to do anything like this. I'm my own person. I hate Oscar. You know the reasons why. Like, 
people still weren't sure the the exact reason why. Like there was there was articles and things like that, but it wasn't like the internet was prominent where Vargas could speak, you know, his opinion on it to everybody. So people were still a little bit in the dark as to why he hated him, but everybody kind of knew at this point, hey, I'm my own person. I want to fight for Oscar one day. Don't compare me to him. So we know how Vargas's career has panned out since then. The Trinidad fight, he rebuilt himself, yada, yada, yada. Eventually, though, man, the fight looked like it was never going to happen for a while because as much as Vargas wanted it, De La Hoya, because he hated Vargas as much as well, didn't want to give him that payday. And I know people, and there's a lot of fighters like that that feel like, you know what? Yeah, well, he was like, well, dude, he's talking shit. I'm not going to fuck Exactly. Him. I'm not going to give him a payday. Absolutely. Why am I, yeah. Why yeah. am I going to help him out? He's like, mm-hmm. fuck him. And, I, it, you know, I totally get that because he's not the first person that, that's like that. You know what I mean? Canelo kind of has that attitude to people today. Uh, a lot um, of people feel as though that's why it was taken this long to fight Golovkin three times because he was exactly. like, well, he talks shit, so fuck him. So, yeah, when people are in that position where they can kind of pull those type of plays, you know, they're going to do that. Really, man, fuck you. I'm not going to give you that chance. I'm going to fight so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and keep it pushing. Eventually, though, the, you know, it's clamoring and the fight ends up happening. Um, what was it? In 2002. And at this point, you know what I mean? It's it's still, it's a very, very hot fight, bro. Like, both guys, they both lost a couple of times. You know what I mean? The the luster is off of where they were, as where they were prominently at one point, but I mean, you remember this, dude, that everyone was still really excited. They knew this was going to be like a war. I mean, Delahoy was favored, and most people figured that Delahoy would win. But, like, you had to be excited for it because you just knew the hatred that Vargas was exuding. And then when Vargas was before the fight showing off his new body and talking about how much he yeah, was working like out. he was in great shape. He'd obviously I mean, been dude, training hard. Man, he, he looked, for a guy who never really was body beautiful like that, like, Vargas always had, like, the had like the the Chavez Tony Ayala Jr. type body where like he was in shape but he was never ripped you know what I mean always looked like he loved handles and and in boxing you don't necessarily you know you could go 12 rounds and not be ripped that doesn't necessarily have anything I mean I'm just saying he had like as opposed to having a Tim Bradley body he looked like more like a Chavez body which suited him and all of a sudden now he's looking like Bradley yeah, this fool's taking off his shirt looking like Edison Miranda. Like, I'm talking had an eight-pack over here, shredded arms, man. The whole thing, dude. The cuts in his arms, the the glue, all this shit you would see. And you're like, wait, what? And you see him with these strength and conditioning. That fool was, even, that fool was even flexing his bangs. Bro, <laughs> like, he was in insane shape. And everyone was just like, you know, I'm sure there was a lot of uh, eyebrows being raised, being like, wait a minute, this isn't. Vargas's body suddenly looks a lot different than what would used to be known. But the most part, the public who doesn't really think about those type of things or really give a shit either way were really excited. They're like, oh man, Vargas are going to come. And I'm sure a lot of people, Vargas supporters, seeing Vargas the way he was looking for that fight, were very excited at the possibility of him whooping Oscar's ass. But, you know. to be, dude. And you know, it, he, it was a great fight, man. Vargas tried early on, man, but he did a good job. Like, you know, he was swarming. Yeah. He was doing a good job. I think that it was not quite as, as effective as it looked at in the moment. Cause it was like, Oh shit. You know, like he's totally got Oscar on the ropes and he's swarming him and he's like pushing him around. It's but kind it was of like, like when Oscar had Floyd on the ropes, you know what I mean? Exactly. He looks like he's like once it settled more down, it was like, Oh, okay. All right. That yeah. was not shit. But, but yeah, so, dude, he, he came, he did about everything that he could, you know, like he, he probably even fought too aggressively. Really. He probably he uh, put too much into those first few rounds. He probably should have settled down, used his jab, you know, et cetera. But like, that's not what he did. He was mad, fought mad, wound up absolutely 
blowing his fucking wad and then when it came to you know like the uh a little bit past the halfway point dude he didn't have nearly as much and all it took was that one fucking that uh that hook you know that that one hook was just like whap he didn't even see it coming slow motion drop (laughs) yeah yeah and then after that just the old Oscar hits him with like the 90,000 punches. Yeah. Just gets in there over and over and over with a flurry. And Vargas looking like Mr. T in Rocky Three with his hands up, trying to block it with the head still like swimming. Yeah. There's nothing else you can do. Yeah. Oh, man. You know, Oscar, at the end of the day, we, you know, and then we found out afterwards that Vargas basically tested for every steroid in the book, giving him a double L in that fight. <laughs> he, he pissed hot for Nandrolone, which is like in the steroid world is like a super old school steroid. That shit motherfuckers were using in like the 60s. Yes. Yeah. And it's like, and so it's like to get popped on a piss test in like the 2000s for fucking Android. using the same using the same shit that guys like superstar billy graham and them used to use in WWF just, yeah i mean that just suggests that you just are stupid you know so totally. i mean absolute psychopath and you and you took the fucking l on top of it dude and and he got uh suspended for however long it was like a year or whatever mm-hmm. and his career never recovered from that no. nothing, nothing no. recovered from that no he can't, you know, and for, for like Vargas is one of those guys that like he had such a high profile name that he would never like kind of not be a star. But anytime he stepped up, man, he lost pretty emphatically. Fought Shane Mosley. Um both times got stopped. Uh first fight was better than the second, but that second one kind of sealed the fate on his career because what was that? One shot and the same thing splied out again. Yeah, dude. At least in the first in the first fight, he had an argument because his eye was all fucked up. Yeah, and he was doing pretty good and coming on when, mm-hmm. uh, in toward the end of the fight too. But then you know the second fight was like that was that first fight was all he had. He had gotten so out of shape between fights, uh, like it was like it happened too many times. It oh, was like after oh. that it would. I mean, I'm not trying to. He, talk he, shit, always, he always would say like that he would him. he would be completely out of shape. And then he'd be interviewed and he would talk about how he was in shape. Dude, he was, there were a couple times where he was like big, like big. When I saw him at the Mayorga press conference, the second one, not the one where the the crazy fiasco, this one had a minor fiasco. He he walks in there and it was a summertime and it's, it's pretty hot out. I remember. And he's wearing like um, one of those like silk, probably designer button, like a Versace button down shirt or something like that. Gucci, one of them shits. But it's like a it's like a silk shirt that you know definitely something that you would sweat through in the summertime you wear in that in New York all the humidity, and Vargas is a dude you you tell he's big at this point like you know he probably just started training but he's thick, and you just see like the sweat beating down the side of his head man and it looked like you know coming down his forehead all the other stuff like he was pouring it out on him, and then he had the nerve to say, after he comes in clearly out of shape when he wait when he weighed in for the fight in November because it was around Thanksgiving time he was like oh yeah 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 man I'm in great shape I'm already in shape I'm gonna go and enjoy Thanksgiving dinner now you know I'm gonna eat some turkey and blah 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 I'm like what do you mean you got like a fight tomorrow you gotta talk whether I'm probably fucking wipe turkey <laughs> word looks like you're sweating Crisco and you're over there talking about how you're gonna eat turkey and mashed potatoes and fucking candy DMs and all this stuff Vargas you nut terrible dude ugh. Yeah, but yeah, man, you had to bring that up because that was like the way he was talking so much crap in the in the lead up for that fight. 
Yeah, dude, for real though. I mean, that's and and on top of that, like I said, that happened more than once. Although that was the more epic time for sure. Yeah. But Vargas, unfortunately, just well, he's just like a shit talker by nature. I think so. It's like you can take the L after talking shit sooner or later. A very you know? emotional guy, very tough yeah. emotional guy. Not a you know, not a bad thing to have as a trait for a fighter, but you know. That's for sure. Well, do you do you remember real quick? Uh, I I think it might have been the rematch, the Shane Mosley rematch, when Jin Jin Mosley and for oh, his wife. wife were yes. getting into it and shit. Oh fuck, bro! You know you don't want to mess with Jin either. She seems like a scary woman. I guess Vargas's wife was getting really loud, and Jin just went like this, right, with the finger, finger wave, finger waved her over. <laughs> Pass. I would, have, I would have been totally down for them to the fight. Absolutely. Fuck it. Yeah. Just have the husband's fight and then have the wife's fight on the undercard. Why not? I'm totally down for that. I would have been amazing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, awkward as fuck if one loses and one wins, though. But like that ride home, that car ride home is going to be rough. Oh, yeah. Man, I don't know. Yeah. That's a, that's a rough car ride home, bro. <laughs> like when Chappelle said that him and him and his wife went to the Pacquiao fight, uh, Pacquiao Mayweather fight. And he said it was, they said it was a quiet car ride home. <laughs> So it was a good fight, huh? It's like, no. she did. Yeah, he said, he said his wife had nothing to say. <laughs> no. Um, Dude, I, it, uh, yeah, these poor souls who got served a fucking L after talking shit. You know, we, we mentioned many of them today. Although I, I, before we go, first of all, thank you, of course, because it's Absolutely. always a great time, bro. Um, but before we go, I was going to say uh, I hadn't in a while, and I do want to kind of throw some shout outs out there because it's been a minute and there have been a number of new subscribers new listeners who have uh you know popped up and said hey thank you and have been really cool which i really appreciate i know it kind of lifts your spirits to hearing that people are listening and enjoying it so anyway uh thomas delmore he sent me a dm DM the other day saying thank you appreciate him listening because i've known him through twitter for a long time uh paulo vega the dude is like the retweeting master when it comes to boxing but you know he's uh helped us out in that regard a number of different times fred arens uh of course reggie dunlop dude's always listening in ted coggs also always listening in um let's see who else mark nelson uh let's see um Joseph Godfrey, um, Lee Gormley, of course, Lee is always retweeting our shit. So Lee, appreciate you. Chris Dowdle. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I know I'm like leaving out a ton of people. I was just kind of really briefly going over the mentions uh, from totally. the Knuckles and Gloves account. But also, also uh, fairly important, I did want to say one last thing. Uh, para los oyentes y también los espectadores que hablan en español, pues hay un podcast de historia del boxeo en español que se llama Libra por Libra y es presentado por Luis Fuentes y Jorge Lera. Uh, unos de los últimos episodios del podcast sobre, trata sobre Dick Tiger, el gran campeón uh, de Nigeria. Pero si, uh, si les gustan este podcast, si Uh, disfrutan la historia como nosotros, pues uh, también dis disfrutarán del podcast Libra por Libra. En, es, en el episodio del Dick Tiger hablan uh, de la mayor importancia 
de los títulos británicos y pues en, en décadas pasadas y de algunas de las tradiciones uh, cultura, uh, culturales de los pueblos de Nigeria, pues mucho más. Uh, así que los, les invito su, a suscribirse al podcast de Libra por Libra y seguirlos en las redes sociales y a seguirlos, uh, pues Luis Fuentes y Jorge Lera. Muchísimas gracias. Thank you so much. And if you did not speak Spanish, well, I guess that wasn't for you. But any Spanish-speaking listeners, I guess if you're trying to practice your Spanish, there's a podcast called Libra por Libra. It's written Libra ex Libra. That's totally in Spanish and hosted by Jorge Lera and Luis Fuentes. And they also do hist uh, history podcasts. So again, if you're trying to practice your Spanish, get in on that shit. Um, and I know my Spanish is not like great, so I apologize, but I do what I can. Anyway, as far as this show goes <laughs> and cutting the shout out shorts, I appreciate everybody who listened in. I know Eris does too. I also appreciate everybody who watches the show. If you did listen in, go onto those podcast apps and subscribe and give us a rating. If you watched, subscribe on YouTube. We appreciate mm -hmm. that. Leave some comments. There've been a lot more comments recently on uh, videos. So that's really appreciated. If you have questions, whatever, please throw them out there. Uh, as far as social media goes, Knuckles and Gloves podcasts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. But we're also individually on Twitter. Eris Pina is on Twitter as Punch Zone Eris. Me, Patrick Connor, I'm there as Patrick M. Connor. Please say hello. Totally. I'll say hello later on, man. <laughs> yeah, man, Talk this was you. a great one as always. <laughs> yeah, dude, for sure, man. Thanks so much. Always, All right, everybody. Man. Later on. Later. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.